0: Oh, my God. This what is what over does. right here. I cannot believe. I, that, that it's over. That cage is 16 feet high. And uh, look at this, folks. Listen, listen, unbelievable. My God. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing here. Oh, a headbutt by the Undertaker and a right hand. If he throws him up on the other side, there's... Oh! Good God! Good God! That's it, he's dead. Well, somebody stop the damn match! Enough's enough! The poor son of a... He's broken his...
1: Hello, my name is Chris White, and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, where we're going back in the time machine to June of 1998 for all of your WWF coverage, featuring the 1998 edition of the King of the Ring pay-per-view. We've got three volumes for you, as usual this month. This is volume number one. Volume two is WCW, covering the Great American Bash, and volume three rounds out that month with ECW. Joining me for volume one, we have firstly Eric Landstrom. Eric, how are you doing? Hey guys, there's all the soccer on TV. What's up with that?
2: <laughs> and uh, we also have uh, the boss himself, Rory McNamara. Rory, how are you? Good evening all, and there'll be plenty of World Cup references throughout this show, Eric, so uh, be ready. <laughs> um, Eric, back over to you. Uh,
1: would you kindly uh, kick us off uh, with the news, please? And I'll defer to
3: Rory on that because this is structured very specifically.
2: It is indeed. And we shall kick off with an update on our friend, Mr. Shawn Michaels. It's ended its first live event since WrestleMania 14, when the Fed ran San Antonio on the 15th of this month. Uh, the WWF are hopeful for a return for the 1999 World Rumble, but there are no concrete plans for Michaels yet. Uh, the medical reports indicate he could be back training after three months of rehab, or his back injury could require career-ending surgery. Either way, reports are Michael seemed improved physically and mentally, which can only be considered good news.
3: And out with the old and in with the new, uh, we saw the debut of Edge, uh, real name Adam Copeland, not David Evans, uh, after weeks of ominous videos on the June 22nd Raw this month. Unfortunately, the newcomer Edge uh, seriously injured the neck of Boricua Jose Estrada Jr. in the match, though really the injury seemed to be no fault of either man. Still, it's not a good look for the former Sexton Hardcastle, yes, that's right, to possibly end the career of a respected veteran like Estrada in his first televised match. And notably, Edge did not appear on the June 29th Raw.
2: But on that Raw, Steve Regal debuted and he defeated Droz. Um, Dr. Death Steve Williams also appears imminent for a debut anytime soon. Good to see JR throwing his influence around. Uh, there are rumours that both Regal and Williams will be positioned as shooters brought in by Vince McMahon to topple Stone Cold. Tune into any of the shows Eric's been on over the last several months for further details on this possible plan.
3: Hey, thanks, Rory. Appreciate that. (laughs) And uh, at the top of the card, uh, injuries uh, to Steve Austin and Undertaker uh, and the continued lack of main event depth in the company forced the WWF to postpone shows in Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Boston in the week leading up to King of the Ring. And additional non-televised appearances by the two top faces in the company Uh, We're in a limited capacity this month. Austin continues to suffer what now appears to be a permanent serious problem with his neck that he'll deal with the rest of his career. Uh, Austin also worked the pay-per-view with a heavily bandaged right elbow due to a staph infection. And The Undertaker, not to be outdone, competed in that crazy hell-in-the-cell match with a cracked bone and bone chips in his ankle. And this is probably an explanation why each of those top two matches, good as they were, featured so much pyro and ballyhoo.
2: On June 28th, we had the 1998 King of the Ring, or the event as it might well be known, Flying Foley spotted over Pittsburgh in front of 17,087 fans. Ken Shamrock won the tournament itself, defeating Jeff Jarrett and The Rock, who defeated Dan Seven to make the final earlier in the night. There were also wins for the Headbangers and Tucker, Too Much, X-Pac, and the New Age Outlaws. Kane became a WWF champion by defeating Steve Austin in a first blood match. Yes, that's right. The bald guy who wrestles in his underwear agreed to a first blood match against a guy in a full bodysuit and a mask. And in the match that stole the show and likely set a new bar for insane stunts in professional wrestling, The Undertaker defeated Mankind in a Hell in a Cell match. Much more on that to come. But it wouldn't last
3: long, uh, on the right for Kane at least. Uh, on the Raw the night after King of the Ring, Steve Austin regained the WWF Championship in a short but really fun TV match. Surprisingly, Austin went basically clean, making the prior event's evening, um, evening's main event null and void for the best, really. Uh, this all appears to be building to a SummerSlam main event of Austin versus Undertaker, although rumors of Austin versus McMahon persist. Either way, as of recording time, the August 30th event at Madison Square Garden seems guaranteed to sell out well in advance. Business, as they say, is booming.
1: draw of the month opened with a recap of highlights from over the edge narrated by vince mcmahon vince called austin's victory shallow calling him the least deserving champion of all time mick foley opened the show sitting in a chair in the ring he said he'd lost his teeth the match and austin had kicked his ass he called out mr mcmahon foley said he'd let vince down and that dude would be out of action for a while but hoped to be number one contender when he returned vince called him a miserable failure of a superstar and a human being Foley said he refused to let Vince embarrass him on national TV and threatened to hit Vince with a chair. Vince said that Fo- if Foley did, he could kiss goodbye to his kids' college educa- educations and the mortgage he had just bought. Dude admitted Vince was right and put the chair down. Vince determined that Dude love services were no longer required and danced around Dude as he left the ring. Kevin Kelly interviewed Darren Drozdov backstage but he was too too busy puking. This led into a street fight between LOD2000 and Droz against the DOA which ended after about 4 minutes when when The Undertaker interfered attacking everyone, meaning we had no finish to a street fight. Valvinus defeated Papi Chulo with a top rope splash called The Money Shot. The Undertaker was in the ring to cut a promo on Vince McMahon, he says he has always destroyed the monsters in the WWF to make McMahon's kingdom safe for his hand-picked champions, but Vince doesn't want Taker representing the WWF at the top. Taker says he has always stayed loyal while others left for more money, but Vince had forced him to fight his own brother and gave Paul Bearer a platform to air his family's dirty laundry just for ratings. Taker demanded a title shot. Vince came out and asked what Taker had done for him lately. He booked Taker vs Kane in a number one contenders match in our main event tonight. We had Triple H and the New Age Outlaws vs The Rock, Owen Hart and D'Lo Brown in a six man elimination tag. Billy pinned D'Lo, Rocky pinned Roddy, and Owen pinned Billy to leave Triple H as the last man. He fought back and pinned The Rock but the match ended when Ken Shamrock attacked Owen for the DQ. After the match, The Nation attacked Shamrock but Dan Severn made the save. Jeff Jarrett defeated Farouk in a King of the Ring qualifier after hitting him with a belt buckle while Tennessee Lee had the ref distracted. Taka Michinoku defeated Shofunaki with the Michinoku driver. Paul Bearer did a backstage promo promising Kane would beat Taker and soon be WWF champion. Mark Henry defeated Terry Funk in a King of the Ring qualifier after a powerbomb and big splash in a match that had Vince McMahon on commentary. Austin joined Vince on commentary for our main event, which saw The Undertaker versus Kane in a number one contenders match for Austin's WWF title. They had a mean guy brawl, which broke down after the referee got bumped and Mick Foley ran down to the ring as Mankind. Taker fought Mankind off, but the extra- distraction allowed Kane to hit a tombstone pole driver for the win. Vince was very impressed with the intestinal fortitude of mankind and said he no longer deserved to be fired. Taker and mankind brawled as the show went off the air with Jim Ross remarking that they would have to settle their rivalry in hell. So uh, there's not necessarily too much outside of like storyline and stuff that we will cover from our pay-per-view and TV reports on the show. So I think really... That sort of, you've done, both of you done such a stellar job with the news there. We move straight in to our TV discussion from all the Raw's that led into King of the Ring. Um, we've got a hell of a lot to get through. So I've picked out a couple of things from uh, each Raw, each uh, th- each week. So from the 1st of June edition of Monday Night Raw, uh, the opening roar of the month, um, it's only fair that we pick out the main event of the evening, which sort of set the tone for The entire month of June and the storylines we got to enjoy throughout the month in the main event scene. And we had a number one contenders match with The Undertaker taking on Kane. And uh, with the winner becoming the number one contender for Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title. After a frantic match featuring interference from Mankind, Kane took advantage of the distraction to pick up the win over his brother after around about six minutes. So, Eric, start the month we crowned Kane as the new number one contender, and it's we've set up Mankind versus Taker as a program for the month. Um, how do you sort of, without the benefit of hindsight, how did those two uh, programs sit with you, and what did you make of them uh, le- heading into the month? Yeah, you know, looking at a big
3: picture, we talk about it every month, and, you know, we slipped into the news even about this obvious lack of depth at the top of the card for the WWF but what they've done a really especially now that Sean's not going to be around for anytime soon possibly forever they've done a really really good job of taking the limited amount of pieces they have and reshuffling them uh, every couple of months Uh, you know it helps it fully plays three characters and you can kind of mix in those different personalities and it's very versatile uh, to use him that way but yeah, that, this was this was kind of a natural progression to get Undertaker and Austin uh, to where it appears to be going, which is the you know the main event of, of SummerSlam, perhaps, at least sometime down the line, those two are gonna are gonna hook horns. But you need to get there, and no better way to get Austin to Undertaker than to use to intersect that into this Kane and Undertaker feud that's been going on for. Christ, two years now, basically, Um, if you want to trace it all the way back to Paul Bear turning on on Mankind in 96. And so all that being said, you'd think that this could start to get a little bit tiresome, the same three or four faces at the top of the show, at the middle of the show, at the end of the show. But it didn't. This match had a big fight feel. I mean, Austin was out there. Vince was out there. Those two guys are total heat magnets now. And it just Cast itself into the ring. Kane's still super over, even though he's lost to the Undertaker pretty consistently, except for here. And this was a really interesting way to get Kane a quality his really his first quality win that he's had in the company since he came in, despite being this uh, this huge monster beats The Undertaker, gets a world title shot. This doesn't hurt The Undertaker because there was so much uh, extra stuff going on. The Undertaker at this point in his career can take an an unclean loss uh, without any sort of damage. This didn't hurt anybody. It keeps mankind, we get mankind back and he's so much more entertaining than dude love. And this just came off as well as it could considering the limited amount of resources that the Fed has right now.
1: Uh, Rory, over to you. Same question. What do you feel about the main event scene heading into the month of June?
2: One thing I must say is I was surprised at how good the match was between Undertaker and Kane. I mean, we talk about on Raw a lot how matches are now just two to three minutes of insignificance in between angles and promos. Yet here, the fact that it was so pared down and they only had six seven minutes to play with. Now, it worked for them. It meant they could cut out all the crap. There were no stupid uh, rest holes. I mean, just look at their previous two matches at WrestleMania and Unforgiven. They went about 20 minutes each. Oh. And as interesting as they were from a story perspective, they felt every bit of 20 minutes here. But this was their version of a sprint. They had six or seven minutes. They went straight into the heat. Undertaker got his comeback. They timed the Mankind Interference perfectly. It made sense. Kane wins as cleanly as he's going to over the Undertaker. And he did need one. If he had gone 3-0 and against Taker, then I'd, I'd, even if they managed to get to the title shot against Austin some other way, then I don't think anybody would buy him as a threat, no matter how evil and heinous he supposedly is. So they got there the right way. At the time, at the beginning of the month, I did find it a little odd that Kane was the number one contender, because don't forget, he only came in in the first place back in October to take on The Undertaker. Indeed, if you believe uh, some of the sheets, he was supposed to be gone by now. He was there for a one-and-done, four-month storyline, and he'd be on his way. Yet, they've kept him around. He's now not just the, the undertaker's mortal flesh and blood enemy he's now an active member of the roster going for titles having paul bearer with him helps in that respect because otherwise i'd wonder well doesn't kane just want to hurt the ta- hurt taker doesn't he re- does-, does he really care about being wwf champion but i think throughout the month they told that story well and uh again i did find it a little odd that we're getting undertaker versus mankind part 7 or 8 or whatever but uh i was proved wrong on that one
1: I do think, Eric, you made a good point um, with how even though it's it's Mick Foley, um, the three characters is, is such a plus for everything he touches. And um, even though they are very similar and one character sort of bleeds very much into the next, um, the dynamic changes, whether you've got a dude love in there with Stone Cold or you've got a mankind in there with The Undertaker, even though you've got the same worker, cutting very similar promos at least with a very similar sort of tonality to it um, but from a storyline and fat like from a fan's perspective it has a new feel even though this matchup is something we've seen so many times Vince McMahon and the Stooges came out in full tuxedos to kick off our 2nd Raw of the Month. Vince said he would be named the Humanitarian of the Year and promised that Steve Austin would be joining them for the presentation later tonight. Ken Shamrock defeated The Godfather with the ankle lock in around 2 minutes. The Nation tried to attack him after but Dan7 made the save. We had the announcement that Summerslam would be at Madison Square Garden. Steve Blackman and Farouk defeated Mark Miro and Jeff Jarrett after Blackman rolled up double J after around three minutes. Owen Hart defeated Scorpio in a King of the Ring qualifier with a sharpshooter. Undertaker arrived at the building, looked backstage for Vince. Chains defeated Droz in a short, horrible match with a Death Valley driver in about two minutes. After the match, Taker hit the ring and chokeslammed both men. Taker got on the mic, called out Vince, who was shown backstage, so Taker left to find him. DX came out for a promo. They started to address the nation, but LOD2000 interrupted wanting a WWF tag title shot. Triple H granted this to them, which brought out the DOA, who also felt they were worthy of a title match. DX huddled to decide what to do and came to the conclusion they could all suck it. Commissioner Slaughter came out and booked a triple threat match between the three teams. We see Taker backstage throwing a tantrum, throwing stuff around backstage, followed by an edge vignette. Mark Henry vs. Vader went to a no contest, when The Undertaker ran in, chokeslamming both men. Dan Seven defeated Delo Brown in a King of the Ring qualifying match via submission, after tearing D'Lo's pec in the storyline. Owen Hart ran out to attack Seven, but Shamrock made the save. We had a ver- farewell video package for save all before seeing Steve Austin meeting two Chicago Bears black stage. Val Venus versus vs. Dustin Ruddles I had a pretty... Val Venus. Valvinas faced Dustin Runnels in a pretty good match that didn't have a finish after The Undertaker once again interfered and chokeslammed both men. Backstage DX shot Doc Hendricks and cameramen with super soakers. The New Age Outlaws retained their WWF tag team titles against LOD 2000 and the DOA in a triple threat match after the Outlaws got tagged in against each other and Road Dog laid down and let Billy Gunn cover him. DX all celebrated together while the announcers buried the other team for being stupid enough to let this happen. We see a group of cops arrive backstage. Al Snow and Head confronted Jerry Lawler at the announce desk about getting a meeting with Vince McMahon. Security grabbed Snow and took him away from ringside. Vince and the Stooges came out for our main event while the cops were confronting the Undertaker backstage. Austin joined them in his usual attire but with a tie around his neck which appalled Vince. Vince humbly but deservedly accepted the humanitarian award before Austin dubbed Vince the Jackass of the Year and went to leave but the Undertaker's music hit and druids wheeled a casket out. Mankind appeared from under the ring and jumped Austin and Kane emerged from the casket to join in. They locked Austin in the casket while Vince looked on with glee. Scaling back up quite a bit now in terms of importance, but from the 8th of June edition of Raw, the second Raw of the month, uh, there was a match that I thought it was worth us talking about, which is a triple threat tag team match between the DOA, LOD2000 and the New Age Outlaws. So having this triple threat tag team match, it wasn't pretty, but I would go as far to say that it seemed like everyone involved was bringing the effort on this particular evening. It wasn't wasn't a lazy match. Um, Eventually, though, the Outlaws got tagged in against each other. Uh, they initially protested, but then realised that because it's just the first guy to get a pin would pick up the win for his team, Road Dog just laid down in the ring and Billy Gunn pinned him. That was the end of the match. DX celebrated. Uh, the announcers were furious with the DOA and LOD2000 for letting DX get away with it. And that was that. The match ended when the New Age Outlaws pinned each other. I don't really know where to start with this one? So, uh, we're here to come to you looking for some guidance here. Really,
2: <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, yeah, I thought it was great, it, very silly, very stupid, and it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. But if anybody would do this, it would be the New Age Outlaws, the team of Billy Gunn, and specifically Road Dog. I can imagine them with, if we don our cafe pats, uh, nice and early in the evening. I can see them discussing this if it was ever a situation where it came down to them they just have one pin the other to try to win the match now this did happen over on the other channel a few months ago There was a uh i think it was uh the outsiders i, w- I want to say against the nasty boys and phases of fear back towards the end of 96 when uh Hall. And Nash actually tried to pin Hall on that one, but, but it was broken up. So I was glad to see it get a win here. It made them look clever. It made the DOA look stupid. It made LOD look <laughs> irrelevant. And one thing I really did like the touch as well is that Billy not only did he go for the pin, he actually hooked the leg as well. <laughs> just in case there was a chance that Road Dogg would kick out. But yeah, really, really dumb, but great, great fun.
1: Eric, uh, your take on this crazy finish? You know when I, when I saw this,
3: uh, I just thought of our you know, retired former professor emeritus down helping the children in Mexican orphanage is now Mr. Bamber. (laughs) And um, a smile came over my face because there have been at least two, maybe three, typically WCW because they tend to do more of the multi-man matches, multi-team matches, but Bash at the Beach 95, SummerSlam 96 come to mind where there's just a couple matches there. And somewhere on the show, uh, somebody probably said, Why don't they just pin each other? And then, Rory, if you want to keep your kayfabe hat on,
2: who was in that uh, 1996 SummerSlam match? Mr. Billy Gunn. Uh, Yes, he was indeed. I don't really want to be reminded of that much otherwise because it was one of the worst of the year. But yes, good uh, good spot. One could suspect if we're going to take this as a
3: kayfabe athletic competition that Billy Gunn tucked that away in his memory bank and pulled that card out when needed. So I just thought, we've always talked. it was just so funny because we've talked about this for so many years on this show, me and other people and Bob and both of you, I'm sure, about how stupid this rule loophole is. And even the announcers mention it, they kind of bury the characters here. And here we have this perfect uh, consummation of, a dumbass rule being exploited and two dumbass teams being exploited because of it by this snarky heel chicken shit team on the rise. I thought this was just so symbolic of where professional wrestling has gone in the last 18 months to two years, just totally visual you know a, a psychological mental burial of these two old school teams by this by this cocky heel squad exploiting a rule that's been exploitable for as long as this type of match has been around so you know this is a very internally you know wrestling 20 years ago uh, satisfying event and i'm, I'm so happy we we're able to talk about it everybody go and watch this and then go back and watch those other matches and realize how dumb they are
1: We begin the third roar of the month, the return of Sable. She says the man responsible for her return is Vince McMahon. Vince came down and asked Sable to read a prepared statement which denied Vince had anything to do with the attack on Austin last week. Austin came out to confront him. Austin helped Sable out of the ring before stalking Vince around. Vince blamed The Undertaker for last week and said they had set Austin up. Vince said Taker us from the dark side and this brought Taker out to speak for himself. Taker says he challenged Austin for the WWF title but with respect. He said Vince was a damn liar. Kane, Bull and Mankind then interrupted. Bearer says McMahon had nothing to do with the plan last week. Bearer himself had hatched it with Taker before setting our main event by challenging Austin and The Undertaker to face Kane and Mankind tonight inside Hell in a Cell. The Rock defeated Vader in a King of the Ring Qualifier after some interference from Mark Henry on the outside allowed Rock to pick up the win in the ring with the Rock Bottom. DX did a skit where they were dropping knowledge, preparing for X-Pac vs Triple H tonight in a King of the Ring Qualifier. Road Dogg, standing in front of a board with Match of the Year written on it, said they had faced both men in the past and it was tough. Aaron Rozdov defeated Jeff Jarrett after interference from Mark, Miro and Jackie ahead of their King of the Ring Qualifier next week. Kevin Kelly asked Taker if he thought he could trust Austin tonight. Taker said that you can't trust anyone who lives with the motto, don't trust anybody, but he promised that Austin could trust him. Dustin Runnels defeated Mark Miro after distractions from Jeff Jarrett and Sable. He had X-Pac vs Triple H in a King of the Ring qualifier. They posed together before the match, but X-Pac jumped Hunter and tried to roll him up for a quick win, but Hunter kicked out. They had a good match until The Rock ran down and distracted Triple H while Owen Hart crotched X-Pac on the guardrail. Hunter ran to X-Pac's side, but X-Pac couldn't stand, and he ordered Hunter to head into the ring to take account our victory, which he reluctantly did. Al Snow and Head came out as Avatar. He buried the Avatar gimmick as if anyone remembered it. He accused Vincent Mann of attempted murder of his career. Lawler and Snow brawled, with Snow hitting Lawler with Head and bailing when security arrived. Michael Cole asked Austin if he felt he could trust Taker. Austin said that he didn't and Taker shouldn't trust him either. Ken Shamrock and Dan Seven took on Owen Hart and Mark Henry in a match that ended by DQ and DX hit the ring when Owen got the sharpshooter locked in on Shamrock. DX brawled with the nation and Vader ran out to attack Mark Henry. We had a tag team Royal Rumble to name the number one contenders for the tag team titles in a match that had 30 second intervals. We started with LOD 2000 against Kane and Mankind. 10 teams entered the match. Eventually, we came down to Terry Funk and Scorpio taking on Kane and Mankind. Kane tombstone Scorpio and booted Funk out of the ring to win a complete mess of a match to declare himself and Mankind the new number one contenders. This followed with the cell lowering and Bearer, Kane and Mankind calling their opponents for the main event down to the ring. Austin obliged but Taker didn't show. Kane and Mankind jumped Austin on the ramp and Bearer locked himself inside of the cell. Taker came up through the ring, going after Bearer with Kane and Mankind frantically fighting to get back into the cell. Kane climbed to the roof while Austin and Mankind brawled as Taker rendered Bearer a bloody mess, throwing him into the cell repeatedly and dropping stairs on his head. Austin, ma- Austin laid Mankind out with chair shots on the outside before climbing to the top of the cell and brawling with Kane in an awesome visual as the show went off the air moving on to the 15th of june edition of monday night raw um i think we should probably mention the uh main event of the show well the scheduled main event of the show which was steve austin and the undertaker taking on uh the newly crowned tag team number one contenders uh kane and mankind after they won a tag team uh royal rumble match um in a hell in a cell uh on raw um the match never actually. Got started, but with the cell lowered, uh, Kane, Mankind and Bearer, they were in the ring and uh, they called out their opponents. Austin obliged, but the Taker didn't show. So Kane and Mankind left the cell and jumped Austin on the ramp. Uh, Bearer locked himself inside the cell, thinking he was safe. And of course, Austin, uh, sorry, Taker came up through the ring and went after Bearer, with Mankind and Kane frantically fighting to try and get back into the cell to help. Uh, Paul Bearer out. Uh, Kane climbed to the roof while Austin and Mankind brawled and uh, take a rendered Bearer bloody mess, frying him into the cell repeatedly, dropping stairs on his head. Um, on the outside, uh, Austin laid out Mankind with chair shots and uh, climbed to the top of the cell as well. He brawled with Kane, and uh, we had an awesome visual of them going back and forth as the show went off the air. So no Hell in the Cell match on Raw. But, Eric, a, a really excellent angle to build towards a Hell Cell match at the pay-per-view as well as the title match.
3: You know, they did this exactly right because in the time since, uh, even in the short time since The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels had their five-star classic back in October, there's probably been some, you know, relevant percentage of increase in the new wrestling audience. I mean, we see it. Uh, all the time now, wrestling is has, is becoming more mainstream than it's been, and it's happening quickly. So I could see them, you know, not necessarily hyping a cage match uh, on the Raw before a pay per view because every you know old school wrestling fan and their grandmother knows what it can visualize what a cage match is. But if I'm the wrestling fan, what the hell is this hell in a cell thing? And they preview it here on Raw, and I'm like, oh my god, look at that thing! And they're on top of it. Somebody's gonna fall off. What the hell is gonna happen? I've got to buy this show. So if I'm a new wrestling fan and I see the structure and then I find out for only $29.95 or however much it is, I can see two guys actually beat the hell out of each other for it uh, inside of something like this. I thought that was brilliantly executed. They got the sell there really kind of ingrained it into folks who these people were and what it was going to be and really got the the structure over. And then the structure became far more over than it ever could have been at the show. But just from a basic booking uh, perspective, even – the segment itself was executed flawlessly, I think. But even if the segment hadn't been it at least, you know, visually got, got over, what the hell is this thing and, and why are two dudes going to fight inside of it? Really kind of re-educating this new audience. Um, really smart, I think.
1: Uh, Rory, your thoughts on this uh, build to the main event of the King of Ring pay-per-view?
2: Yes, uh, I thought it was really quite interesting that here we are two weeks out at this point from uh, the pay-per-view and again, I did raise an eyebrow at the start when they announced it was going to be a hell in a cell match. I was like, really? You're doing that on free TV when you've got a pay per view in just two weeks' time? But in the end, it was just a hard sell and a, a damn good hard sell. I mean, there was barely any quote unquote action in there at all. I don't think the match ever truly got started. It was all about Undertaker being under the ring and getting him some of Paul Bearer, Kane hiding up on the cage, and Austin beating the hell out of him. And indeed, if you had any doubts beforehand that Kane v. Austin shouldn't main event a pay-per-view, just listen to the crowd when Austin was there beating him up. Yes, I know it's Austin. He could get a huge pop for beating on, I don't know, me, for example. But even so, it showed that this was something people really wanted to see. The crowd were mad for it, and uh, it was really sensible booking. It felt like, I'm glad they did this two weeks out rather than one week out, because if anything did go wrong, they probably still would have had a chance to tweak it. As it was, nothing did go wrong. And it was an excellent hard sell. This is what you use your TV for. You don't use it to give things away. You just want a hinter so, to get people to part with, part with a hard earned cash. And it was an excellent job of it yet again. And God bless Paul Bear for blading on television. Oh man, that blade job was that was sick. That that was that's zero point nine Muta. I mean, fair play that man.
1: Vince McMahon came out for a promo to kick off the go-home show for King of the Ring. He introduced Kane, calling him the next WWF champion. Vince promised on Sunday that it would be the greatest day of Kane's life and announced the match for Austin's WWF title would be a first blood match. Kane using a voice box vowed that if he failed to become champion he would set himself on fire. Ken Shamrock defeated Mark Henry in a King of the Ring quarterfinal with a belly to belly suplex. We caught a glimpse of Edge sitting in the crowd and footage of Paul Bearer watching Raw at, on his couch at home. x defeated Dustin Runnels with a spinning heel kick after a distraction from China. Paul Bearer cut a promo from home, v- vowing to be in Kane's corner at the pay-per-view to v- witness his son become WWF champion. We had a hideous promo segment featuring Jerry Lawler and Al Snarl, which culminated with a match being made between Snow and Head and Too Much at King of the Ring. You'll hear us break this down in greater detail on the main show. Jeff Jarrett defeated Mark Camero after Sable appeared and distracted him, allowing Double J to hit DDT for the win. After the match Jarrett promised Kevin Kelly that the king of country music will become the king of the ring on Sunday. We kick off the second hour with Kane defeating Road Dog. Kane went for a chokeslam but Roadie broke it up with a low blow. Kane only no sold the low blow to hit a chokeslam for the win anyway. Bearer appeared on the big screen saying that Taker tried to kill him last week because he didn't want Bearer to reveal that Taker is part of Mr McMahon's plan to destroy Stone Cold. The lights flickered in Bearer's house, Taker appeared in in the living room, destroying Bearer and his furniture. We had the debut of Edge as he faced Jose Estrada Jr. Edge sent Jose to the floor, hitting him with a somersault plunger, but this legit broke Jose's neck and he stayed down on the outside, giving Edge the count out win. Kane was backstage reacting angrily at what had happened to Bearer while Mankind tried to console him. Dan Seven defeated Owen Hart in a King of the Ring quarterfinal after X-Pac hit Owen with a chair on the outside and Seven submitted submitted him. The Rock defeated Triple H in another King of the Ring quarterfinal after a good match with an anti finish that saw Rocky get the pin with a fisherman suplex after around 8 minutes of action. The Nation and DX brawled after the match. Mankind cut an excellent promo and low in the ring as the cell lowered around him. You'll hear the promo and our discussion of it on the main show. Mankind then defeated Billy Gunn with a mandible claw despite interference from China. Sable came out to introduce so-called Steve Austin. He told her to go give Vince the finger and she said she'd oblige. Austin accepted the first blood stipulation and says that when Kane sets him on fire Austin will bring the marshmallows, hot dogs and beer. Kane came out, raised his arms and blood dropped from the ceiling and covered Austin. Ken said that on Sunday, the blood would be for real. Moving on to the go-home edition of Monday Night Raw ahead of King of the Ring, and I picked out a couple of things to chat about that are very much at the opposite end of the spectrum. First up, in my opinion, an absolutely hideous promo segment. Uh, we start with Jerry Lawler in the ring. He's cutting promo on Al Snow. He uh, claimed that Snow was somewhere in the building uh, disguised waiting to attack him. And we see snow emerge through the crowd dressed as an old lady. Uh, Lawler says that if snow gives him back his crown, uh, Lawler would get snow that meeting with Vince. They did some awful comedy before uh, snow eventually did give the crown back from head to Lawler and uh, Lawler handed snow a contract signed by Vince McMahon. Uh, the contract was for a tag team match at King of the ring with Al snow and head said to take on too much. Uh, Al then spoke about doing the J-O-B at the PPV. Uh, Lawler said that if Snow loses he is history and uh, Snow laid down in the ring, he shouted, pin me, pay me. Uh, he talked about counting lights. Uh, too much then ran down to attack Snow, uh, but he beat them both down with head and bailed. So there's your build to a, a nice little mid-card tag team match uh, at King of the Ring. uh Rory, I'll come to you first. What did you make of uh, this little promo?
2: Yeah, you've seen all the, all the Raws uh, this month, Chris, and you picked out this one for us to talk about. Yeah, so let's just say that's been noted. Yeah, okay. Um, I said, it doesn't really get much better either the week after, but we'll go with what we had on Raw at the time. Yeah, I thought this was just terrible. It's so often said about Vince McMahon, and I think it's true that if there's something that he doesn't really understand and or he didn't create it himself, then you're pretty much doomed. And that was the case here. The character, of, and we, we talked about this on the ECW show last month, Al Snow's character, where he has helped me written on, the, written on his own forehead and he talks to a mannequin head. That can work in ECW, our favorite land of misfit toys. If Paul Heyman was on this show now, he could probably sit down for three hours and he could explain to you exactly what that gimmick is about. And he would be 100% correct in everything he says. And, he, and, and it would make sense. Now, the 1,000 people in the ECW arena who are shaking styrofoam heads, they get it. But here, you try and transpose that straight into the WWF with no real transition. You're not really making the people care about snow. I mean, how many people who were in the arena that day even really even know a whole lot about ECW? I'd say very few. And yet, he just looks like a complete weirdo. He's not somebody you want to get behind. You know, he's, he's he's dressed like babushka, And he's rabbiting on about doing the J-O-B on the pay-per-view PPV and pin me, pay me and all that. I'm like, well, if I didn't know who you were, mate, I just wouldn't care. You know, Jerry Lawler, who hasn't said a funny thing for four years, has completely destroyed you during this promo. And I don't really care if you get your contract or not now. And that's a shame because I like Al snow a lot. And as I say, when we get to the pay-per-view, it takes an even bigger hit, if you can imagine that. But no, I thought this was poor. They just plonked him in there without trying to make it make sense giving him a chance to get over what really makes the gimmick. So, in my view, compelling. Look how over he's been in ECW. It does work, but you have to make things work in pro wrestling.
1: Eric, over to you. Your thoughts on that, promo?
2: The segment itself was really bad, and I
3: watched the whole thing, and I don't remember very much of it, frankly. Um, Because it was so slow and so bad, I'm of two minds about this Al Snow deal. First of all, let me say... The older I get and the more that I watch this stuff, the more that I find myself agreeing with Bill Watts and that, or guys like that, Not, not I don't agree with Bill Watts in a lot of ways. Maybe I should have used a different example. But guys like that. Glad, glad, glad to clarify that one. Guys <laughs> like, you know, where it's like, just keep this meta shit out of wrestling. Like, we don't need to pull the curtain back on all this stuff. And, you know, it's cool now to be a smart fan and whatever, but like at a certain point, you're just going to, you know, the, you have to appreciate a little bit of the magic dust that comes with this entertainment that we all enjoy. But you know, you toe the line and probably tip your toe over it when you have guys coming out and saying, "Oh, pin me to lose or pay me to lose." And the J O B squad, the job squad, obviously. And like, it's just I, I don't know if, if I don't know if you can maintain wrestling and its professional wrestling and its fundamental form when you have guys out here like this kind of, I don't want to say exposing the business, but exposing the business. Um, But on the other hand, um, if we're going to, if you're going to go this way, you have to be a lot smarter and a lot more clever than this. And this is just way too on the nose and King's fine. And Al Snow's a really good hand. And we have to give everybody a character. And it's like, well, Al Snow's never going to be world champion. Why can't he come in and just be a, a solid you know, underneath guy and not have to have a character. they just waste time. I don't know. Al Snow's fine. I'm glad to see that. It looks like he's going to be sticking around for a while. He's really good in the ring. I'd like to see him against some of these guys like Owen and triple H and the rock. And, you know, I'm sure he could get really good matches out of a lot of these guys. I don't like the character and I don't know that I'm, I don't know that this storyline is, is or this whole concept of kind of pulling the curtain back is, is for me. Maybe I'm just a little too old timey for, for what's going on right now.
0: Enjoyed studying history. And when I was a young boy, I had a favorite picture that hung on my bed of old men gathered on the hallowed fields Sarah, look. of Gettysburg. Sales coming down. Shaking hands. Why? Northern men and southern men alike. What's going on here? Something shaking hands on the very fields where 50 years earlier they had shed each other's blood. What is he talking and it about? stood to me as a shining example of the better angels of our nature, of the power of forgiveness and the ability of time to heal all wounds. And Undertaker, when I think about our history, I couldn't help but believe that it would end up somehow the same way. Gathering together years later in the same hallowed halls where we did battle to reminisce in the boiler room of Cleveland in Madison Square Garden. And then you went and attacked my uncle Paul. And now I've got a completely new vision. It is of me with my last act on this earth, urinating on your grave, you cowardly son of a bitch. Wow. Wow. He's sick and dangerous. I never thought the word coward could apply to you, but what other choice do I have? Uncle Paul is many, many things. He is a warm man, he is a loving father, but he is not a wrestler, he is not a fighter, he was defenseless and you attacked him. That's right, Undertaker's a coward. And we have every right in the world to arrest you and put you behind bars. Do it. But oh, no, no. You see, this is a family matter. And I'm going to put you behind these bars because blood is thicker than water. And if that's not enough, I can guarantee that mankind will have a surprise for everyone that you will not soon forget. What do you mean by so, that? So, Cain, I ask you to listen close because all is not lost. And when it's all said and done, Cain. You will have Steve Austin's championship. That's what he means. I will have my vengeance. And Uncle Paul will have The Undertaker's soul. That's what he means. Have a nice day.
1: Well, looking to redeem myself after I made you to talk about that hideous promo, uh, we also had an excellent uh, Mankind promo segment on the same Raw. Uh, Mankind sat in the middle of the ring, cutting a promo as the cell lowered around him. He says that he believed that one day he and Taker would find peace, but then Taker had attacked Uncle Paul. Uh, Now Mankind says he wants his last act on this earth to be urinating on Taker's grave. He called Taker a coward for attacking a defenceless non-wrestler. Mankind says that Taker could be arrested and put behind bars, but instead he wants, put him, he wants to put him behind the bars of the cell, and he guarantees that he will have a surprise for everyone on Sunday. Eric, I'll come to you first. Uh, this was a vintage, m- 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 uh, vintage Mick Foley, but also vintage Mankind. Boy, you want to talk
3: about somebody, you know, molding the best of their character with, uh, you know, the best promos that they've ever delivered. This was a kind of a grown up Mick Foley, Cactus Jack in the Mankind character from ECW uh, promo. Like, this was just so good. Those promos that he would do right before he came in uh, to the Fed, you know, 95 or really early 96, where it wouldn't matter. It could be two minutes, it could be 10 minutes, but we were engrossed. And we just talked about how, in a different world, this guy could be a Hollywood you know, some sort of like alt-Hollywood movie star because he was so good in front of the camera and so good on the stick and so clever. And he can just carry a promo. This thing went five or ten minutes. This was very long for one guy to be in the ring by himself and talking, especially a character who's not particularly known for um, for giving long, relatively comprehensive, uh, uh, Interviews that are easy to comprehend. This is a guy that was licking boilers. You know, if we want to talk about SummerSlam 96 again, this is a character that came in as an insane lunatic that has a. And now we have this loquacious and well thought out, but still criminally insane mankind. Really awesome. I was trying to think back, and aside from Austin and Vince, who cut up, you know, an A plus promo every week, this might be the best promo on Raw since Brett's, you know, everything. Uh, that's going on here is bullshit promo right before mania 13 this this is a promo of the year uh nominee if i've ever seen one
2: rory your thoughts on this mankind promo well it was a mankind promo so it was of course fantastic and uh, let's just applaud the greatness of the man it says the first time we've really got got to hear him as mankind cut one of these for a good while and it was a pleasure to hear it Again, it was so intelligent, it was so dense, the illusions he was making, the references, yet it all made perfect sense. In those 10 minutes, he tied it back to wanting to urinate on The Undertaker's grave. And this was a promo which started out about saying that uh, people from North and South coming back together after 50 years to shake hands and settle their differences. It was perfect, but, and it's a big but, and it's not his fault, the promo didn't really get much heat. And I think it's because the promo was... So articulate and intelligent and deep. Your average wrestling fan these days, <sighs> rightly or wrong, no, not rightly, wrongly, in my opinion, they don't really have the time for that. If you want to see me kick this guy's ass, give me a hell yeah. I've got two words for you: socket. That's the stuff people react to. No long verbose, fantastic promos. Tying in your history with the Undertaker with the American Civil War, your average Joe with his Austin shirt and his popcorn, now he's just going to stand by and say, "Well, wh- what's going on here?" He's wrong too, and I just wish that somebody like Mick Foley could get the respect he deserves. Because, yeah, I think even now he's not well. <laughs> he, he makes a bloody good attempt of it, as we'll discuss in, a, in about an hour's time. Uh, Go back to something I mentioned even back during the ECW days with Foley. Sometimes I think he's just too good for the wrestling business. It hasn't really caught up with him. It, a lot of things in pro wrestling need by their very nature to be lowest common denominator. That isn't Foley. He could be anything. He could be a lecturer. He could he could write novels. He could do anything. He's such a clever, clever bloke. And I take my hat off to him every time. But, and again, I want to stress this again, it's not his fault I just don't think the audience is there for it. And that is a damn shame, because he's solid gold.
1: Uh, with that, we move into our coverage of the King of the Ring pay-per-view. Uh, Rory, would you kindly kick us off with the
2: results? I oh, shall sure, indeed. King of the Ring 1998, then. Here we go. In our opening match, which was a bonus match, the Headbangers and Takamichi Noko defeated Kai and Tai made up of Shofunaki, Men's Tail, and Dick Togo. In our first King of the Ring semi-final, Ken Shamrock defeated our friend Jeff Jarrett. And in the second, The Rock beat Dan Seven. Too Much beat Al Snow in Head, with Jerry Lawler, a special guest referee. Moving on. Uh, X-Pac beat Owen Hart in a singles match. Uh, for the WWF Tag Team Championship, over New Age Outlaws defended and defeated against the new Midnight Express, Bodacious Bart and Bombastic Bob. In our King of the Ring final, Ken Shamrock beat The Rock by submission. In a Hell in a Cell match, The Undertaker beat Mankind. I'm sure there'll be nothing for us to talk about there, really. And in our first blood match for the World Wrestling Federation World Heavyweight Championship, Kane defeated Stone Cold Steve Austin.
1: Eric, what did you make of King of the Ring 1998?
3: How do you rate a show like this? I mean, in terms of work rate, it reminded me of something from, like, 1993 WCW. There was was no... There was hardly any good wrestling on the show whatsoever. But it's almost like a WrestleMania six, and then it doesn't matter because you're just going to remember the one thing, and it's going to make that thing seem so much. It's going to bring the whole up, and that Mankind Undertaker spectacle. It can't even really call it a match. That spectacle is going to make this show memorable for a long time. But you know, on a match to match level, yeesh, not not so good.
2: Rory, your thoughts on King of the Ring? Yeah, it was a average. If you, if you t- I'm going to take up the foot of the last two matches, and it was an average to okay event with one decent match, albeit a rather pointless one, somebody finally getting anointed, I think a little bit too late, and one of the worst spectacles I've ever seen, which insulted my intelligence. The final two matches, though, were so important, both in the context of the stories that WWF are trying to tell and the not insignificant matter, you might say, we have probably just seen the damnedest thing in the history of the business so i have no idea how to rate this show needless to say and i'm sure i'll come back to this in about an hour's time go out of your way to watch it i've never seen anything like it it's certainly one of and obviously we will
1: get to it in much greater detail but the most iconic things like I can't imagine it just not lasting forever within sort of this like within the fan of the rest uh, the mind of a, of the wrestling fan like the image that you get from the show will, will last forever and the legacy of it will last forever and that like if you had like a a 9 out of 10 pay-per-view where you had like say six good matches every match delivered you had really good work rate but at the end of the day it was just like a show full of good wrestling matches Is that more more valuable to the company or is a show with below par work rate, probably next to no good wrestling, but one of the iconic visuals and memories within the entire arena of professional wrestling? Um, Long term, this is far more valuable as a show. And I, I don't think the earlier matches on the card, which were bad and i'm not going to defend in any way but i don't think they were quite as bad as some of the undercards of the last few months pay-per-views we've seen so overall like even aside from the last two matches this was probably a bit better than the median score of like the last four wwf pay-per-views but then when you add those last two matches back into the fold it's like near impossible to score The show opens with a video package looking at our double main event of the evening, which is the Hell in a Cell match between The Undertaker and Mankind, and the first blood match for the WWF title between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane. We are reminded that Kane, if Kane does not win the WWF title tonight, he will set himself on fire. Our opening match sees Taka Michinoku teaming with the headbangers to take on Kain Dick Togo, Finaki and Tao in six-man tag team action. Frasher and Tao get started with Frasher taking control with a tilt a whirl slam. Mosh tags in and hits a missile drop kick before Funaki tags in and gets hit with a power bomb. Taker tags in, they work over Funaki in the corner. And uh, chopping chopping him in the corner, sorry, and hitting a missile drop kick. Funaki bails to the outside, so Taker hits him with a running springboard planter. Togo hits Taka with a cheap shot from behind, which the camera missed, which allowed Kindside to get the heat on him. Togo tags in, he works over Taka with chops in the ring. The Taka counters with an excellent monkey flip. Togo did a really cool move to Taka, who was on the outside, which started as a baseball slide under the bottom rope, but turned into a head, singers, uh, head scissors on the floor. Uh, Togo and Funaki hit Taka with a beautiful facebuster bulldog combo before Taka fights back and somehow makes the hot tag to both headbangers the match breaks down into a bit of a brawl which leads to funaki missing with an elbow off the top the headbangers flap jack Taka onto funaki and he follows it up with a mishinoku driver for the win uh eric I come to you first what did you make of our opening match
3: yeah this was uh you know i just said that there were not really any good matches on the undercar but there were really kind of two and this was one of them this is exactly. The WWF starting to get the hang of it here with how to structure a card. And this was a kind of the perfect way to structure a card, uh, just to open this match to structure this card because the, the Fed, right now, what they don't have a lot of are high work rate guys. And you need something that's kind of fast paced and not too long five, ten minutes that can get the crowd warmed up a little bit. So you take Taka and you take Kai and Tai, who are, you know, four of the best dudes that you've got put them with the headbangers who are no slouches in their own right and they kind of have this unique fun style and they're super over despite what we you know all think about their in-ring capability they always pop and so putting them with Taka is cool and this was just a really fun kind of pointless match to open up the crowd uh open up the pay-per-view it was good i mean this was one of the this and X-Pac and owen were kind of the two matches on the card that kind of stood above the, the the mean so this was good
1: Rory, your thoughts on our opener.
2: Yep. Perfectly fine opener. Just about seven minutes. Babyface is going over. There's, all, there's not really too much more to say. But so I do like that they're giving Kai and Thai some in ring time. I also want to say I'm glad they have changed their name from Club Kamikaze. Hey they're Japanese, let's call them Club Kamikaze. You know, why not just call them Club Inscrutable and have done with it? <laughs> but, um, so I'm glad they've done all <laughs> all three of them are towned. Tao and Togo in particular. And I, I really, really hope they have some they can just just keep them in matches like this for a few months until they w- work out what else to do with them storyline-wise because, man, can those two go. And they do offer a whole new counterpoint to what is now the WWF style of wrestling. So there's not a whole lot of work right around, but keep these two there and have them in opening matches. I'd have no problem with them getting seven or eight minutes every pay-per-view. Obviously, Taka knows them well. Mosh and Thrasher are good fun. They all bumped off each other quite nicely. Popular team won. I, it's not a match I could really remember a whole lot about after it had finished, but kept the crowd up, up and jiving, and isn't that the point of opening match of pro wrestling? So, yeah, no complaints here whatsoever.
1: Yeah, fast-paced, fun, inoffensive, pretty harmless, some good work, everyone worked hard, and the crowd were really into it. It's, it's it's good, really. Like There's not really a negative to this type of match. One thing I will say is that it was very evident at points on this show that maybe because of, like, the injuries towards the top of the card with uh, Austin and uh, Taker or whatever the reason that they were stalling for time a little bit and and trying to boost the the length of the show out really. Um, You could have easily given this match maybe three to five more minutes and the other match you mentioned, Eric, I mean, we'll get to it, but Owen and X-Pac as well, you could have easily given another five minutes to that match and, boosted the show out a bit. I, I, I think they went 10 minutes short um, overall anyway. Um, so there was time on the card and you could have done away with some of the uh, more filler-type segments we have later in the show. But yeah, this was pretty good opener. It's everything that you want, really, when you put this match together. You got everything out of it that you could hope for. Ahead of the next match, Sable came out. Uh, she... Introduced Vince McMahon, um, who uh, came down to the ring with Patterson and Briscoe. Uh, As Sable left, Patterson patted her backside, so Sable turned and slapped him. Uh, Jim Ross on commentary made a remark about Patterson being in unfamiliar territory. Vince cut a promo that was uh, below the exceptionally high standards the Mr McMahon character has set. Uh, It was more of a sort of fairly generic heel manager type promo in which he ran down the crowd about them being uh, failures and disappointments. And basically the gist of the promo was that Kane was going to win the title tonight and be another disappointment for the crowd. Um, fairly tame promo. Anyone?
2: Yeah, there wasn't, a, ho- in? Yeah, it wasn't a whole lot to it. And, but it. But again, it went on about 10 minutes, really, didn't it? Um, yeah, again, not, not a whole lot to say they that, that as we said, going through the Raws week by week, the bill that's been excellent. We didn't really need Vince to cut a standard late '80s style "All You People Are Losers" promo. He's he's better than that. His delivery was good, but I, I it's not fair. It's not unfair now to expect a whole lot more.
1: Be clear that they added segments like this just to kill a bit of time on the night. Um, but yeah, better uh, fairly harmless overall. Next up, we move into the first. King of the Ring semi final of the evening with Ken Shamrock taking on Jeff Jarrett. Uh, Jarrett was accompanied by Tennessee Lee. Uh, Shamrock gets things started, whipping Double J into the ropes and hit. Uh, Shamrock ducked a leapfrog and hit a knee to the head. He pounded away on Jarrett in the corner until Double J sent Shamrock uh, into the other corner, but he fired out and took him down with a close line. So, non suplex, which got two, but Jarrett fought back into the match. By ducking a kick. He hits a swinging neck breaker and a nice looking drop kick. Shamrock clotheslines Jeff over the top rope to the floor before launching him into the steps. Back inside Lee distracts Shamrock which allowed Double J to hit a chop block and starts working over the previously injured left ankle of Shamrock. Double J distracts the ref and Lee slams Shamrock's left ankle into the post. Shamrock fights his way back into the match with a big elbow and hits a kick to the head. He hits a power slam for a kneel full. Shamrock follows this up with a running hurricane runner, and he slaps on the ankle lock for the quick win. Uh, Rory, over to you first. What did you make of our first semi-final?
2: And again, this was all it needed to be. If you're going to have semi-finals on, on the paper, which you at least should, you probably want to get through them fairly quickly. Although you could say, on the other hand, if you're only having the semi-finals and final, now if you're two semi-finals then go for a grand total of under 10 minutes, which they did. You probably could, again, give them a bit more time. But it didn't really bother me here so much. I think five minutes is about right. It emphasised you know, Jarrett's place on the card. No, he's going nowhere fast, and I'm not particularly sad to say that. But he went out there. He did his job. He put Shamrock over clean, and Shamrock had to win without any any hullabaloo here. Just get your finisher over. Make people believe that that, that move could be used a bit later in the night to become the king of the ring. And that's what happened. Again, the match was... Very little, but it accomplished what it wanted to, and that's make Shamrock look like somebody who really could win this thing.
1: Eric, over to you.
3: Yeah, this was a very safe match designed to get Ken into the finals unscathed and looking strong. Um, You know, this fucking Jeff Jarrett, man. why It just keeps coming up, doesn't he? And I realized that if Jeff Jarrett had been born 10 years earlier, he could have settled right into that Tommy Rich spot in the early to mid eighties, and he would have been a huge star. Unfortunately for Jeff Jarrett, he wasn't. And so now he's just some bland, pointless mid-Atlantic character transposed into 1998. Uh, just whatever. Jim Ross, though, with the line of the night, uh, saying, uh, Tennessee Lee is sweating like Jimmy Swaggart at a deposition. So uh, Jim Ross making this match more entertaining uh, than it ever had any right to be.
1: Uh, considering what is to come, I will say it's a bold shout from you that uh, that is the line of the night. Um, I was ho- I was hoping that you would catch on to that. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah short and to the point. This match really, um, pretty yeah, as you said, safe, idiot-proof. They, they didn't do a whole lot. They kept it simple, but it worked. So overall, uh, a thumbs up, I guess. Like as as fine a five-minute match you could hope to get out of these two, really. With that, we move into the second semi-final of the King of the Ring tournament between The Rock and Dan Seven. Uh, the Rock came down to the ring with The Godfather and Mark Henry, but they were sent to the back before the match started. Seven takes Rock down early, but Rock was able to get to the ropes. Seven again, goes for Rock's knee, applies a half grab, but Rock gets to the ropes. Rock takes control of the map and right hands in the corner. Seven gets an armbar on yet again, but Rock reaches the ropes. Rock hits a clothesline in the suplex for a two and stomps away in seven. Both men are down after they collide. Mark Henry and Godfather run down and distract the ref. D'Lo appears out of nowhere wearing a protective vest. He hits a frog splash off the top onto seven, which is enough for Rock to crawl over and get the pin with and advance to the finals of the tournament after around four minutes. Um, Eric, come to you first. What did you find? Uh, how did you find our second semi final?
3: You know, my goodness, in, in the big, long shadow that uh, the Hell in the Cell match is going to cast over the rest of this show, D'Lo Brown's fucking amazing frog splash. I mean, the height that that guy got, and he's no small man on that frog splash on Dan Severn. On most cards, with considering the type of uh, wrestling we see between the ropes and the fed these days, that would have been a huge highlight. Go back and watch it if you haven't, just to see what D'Lo Brown is capable of doing with that frog splash. Unbelievable! Looks so good that it didn't even bother me that Dan Severn, this you know bona fide killer that they brought in to be, you know, you know badass number one, job to the rock in four minutes after that frog splash because it was so good. Other than that. This was a really sloppy match. I expected better from the two of these guys. It, was, it just became clear for the minute the bell rang that this was just a, a Styles clash and they needed to get through it. I wouldn't be surprised if they shaved two or three minutes off of it, calling it in the ring because it just wasn't clicking. D'Lo saved it. Go back and watch the last minute of this match uh, just for that, but otherwise, pointless.
2: Rory, your thoughts? Yeah, ugly match here. Rock match only lasted four and a half minutes, like we say, but Rock was struggling throughout pretty much every second of that. He just didn't have a clue of how to deal with Seven. Seven wasn't able to help him, and I'm glad it was so short in that respect. Looking at it from another angle, if it hadn't been The Rock in this semi final, I would almost have called this a surprise result because they throughout the month have been pushing hard that we were going to get Shamrock versus Seven. It was um, great booking in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And here Seven gets through to the semi final. Shamrock's already there. You think, oh, Dan Seven's winning this one then. And it comes up short. And as you say, that, that that is good booking. It adds a little bit of realism to it. It doesn't make just everything look like a procession. Now, we we said it so many times on, on this podcast. Predictable isn't always bad, if it makes sense. But changing things up is fine too, as long as, again, it makes sense. But those three little words, and I'll how, how soon we forget them. Yeah, match was pretty rubbish, I'm afraid. I've got some more things to say about the Rock's in-ring work a bit later on. Um, but yeah, uh, D'Lo Brown, the star of this one. I've been really impressed by him over the last year. And uh, I hope he gets a bit of a time to shine as well. He's somebody who I can see as long as the nation hang around. Maybe if you want to break him off, perhaps from the nation, maybe he could be the one to take the icy bolt from Rock from Rocky one day. Uh, I think he certainly deserves a secondary championship because uh, he's worked very hard over the year. Yeah, well done, Dilo. but a uh, few props elsewhere, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, really lackluster match. Um, far too short to really get into a flow, but I wouldn't have wanted it to be any longer. Um, there was no real story. I mean, like you had Seven trying the, the mat work and Rocks just repeatedly getting to the ropes. And I don't know, even that in itself, like like I know you can just get to the ropes and that, that is professional wrestling, but it's a bit of a burial of this, like, this like beast, like UFC cage fighter submission specialist. And he's in there with the rock and he takes him down and he just reaches the ropes. You have to let go like three times in, in a minute. Um, I mean, it's killing the gimmick in a way. Um, so this was really bad for Dan seven. Um, obviously the rock had a chance to redeem himself on the same show. So less negatives for him. Uh, but for Dan Seven, this is a, a really disappointing showing. Um, the whole match really ponderous and nothing too much happening. Next up, we move into a tag team match between Al Snow and Head, who are taking on the team of Too Much, Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor. Um, before the match can get going, it is announced that we have a surprise special guest referee, and it is Jerry Lawler, leaving uh, Jim Ross alone on commentary for this one. Snow takes Taylor down and then uh, breaks off and talks to Head in the corner. He hits an atomic drop and a clothesline on Taylor and Brian Christopher tags in. And Christopher is backed into the corner by Snow and uh, King gets involved, telling Al to watch the hair pulling. He intentionally blocks a shot from Snow and Christopher takes advantage. Lawler tells Head to stay in the corner, which for all the like terrible comedy in this match, like that was the one little bit it got me I had <laughs> I have to admit, I did chuckle at that. Um, Snow hits a Sunset power bomb off the top to Brian Christopher. He goes to the cover, but Lawler takes a very, very long time to check the shoulders are down, counting the slowest two you've ever seen before Christopher kicks out. Christopher hits a nice top rope missile dropkick to Snow. The crowd are completely dead at this point. Too Much hit a double to drop on Snow, which garners an incredibly quick two-count from Lawler. Snow hits a nice belly-to-back suplex on Scott Taylor. And Lawler helps Taylor over to his corner so Christopher can tag in. Christopher drops Snow with a bulldog. Snow fights back into the match. Hits a DDT on both men before tagging in Head, who the crowd actually cheer for. Uh, With Head the legal man, uh, Snow lays out Taylor with Head before hitting a snowblower on Christopher. Uh, But Lawler pretends not to see the cover. Uh, So Lawler leaves the ring. Uh, He passes something to Christopher on the outside. Uh, inside the ring, Snow drops uh, Scott Taylor and covers him. Uh, back inside the ring, Christopher's attached whatever Lola passed to him to head uh, so and uh, has head pinned. So Lola drops to the mat. He counts the three and we've had the legal man too much declared the winners. Al Snow's aghast because he thought he had the pin on Scott Taylor. After the match, we are shown that Christopher had attached a bottle of head and shoulders to head, which is why he was able to get the pin. The crowd were completely dead for this finish. Um, Eric, over to you first. What did you make of this match?
3: It's been a fun ride, gentlemen. Um, (laughs) I I fucking (laughs) popped really hard. When I figured out what, what what was going on, you know, it took about one second uh, into this match segment starting to realize this was just going to be something that was pulled straight from Memphis. And so when you when you're oriented properly with that, when you have the context of knowing that this is probably just something that Jerry Lawler, you know, book booked uh, along with whoever was the agent for the match, um, you kind of just have to go along for the ride. And boy. In that I I don't know it was obviously dumb and I know you guys are gonna shit all over but there were so many f- fun little things in this in this match and wrestling doesn't have to be serious it doesn't even really have to make sense and just the fact that it was so stupid I mean sometimes you watch a movie and Chris Farley movies are good for this sometimes or any of those you know Saturday Night Live guy uh, movies Coneheads kind of too it's so dumb and so kind of thoughtless that you're like oh my god I can't believe that's what they actually went with and you're like holy and you just I don't know. I would like to think that uh, we could all be so uh, entertained by something so simple. And in this case I was, I also just would like to point out that Jim Ross having kind of existential moments about how fucked up his workplace is as this match was going on. Like, Again, I hate to keep saying this. This was not a good match. And if you're not a fan of the Memphis style or you're not a fan of comedy wrestling or you're not a fan of Jerry Lawler, I mean, there's so many things about this match that had it going against that I can see why. It probably got all thumbs down in the Observer and voted worst match of the night. Probably I don't know that to be true, but I imagine it will be. Um, but put all, putting all that aside and just kind of going with it for what it was, I, I don't know. It, it was fun, and it you know got all snow on pay per view, and we all think that he could be doing much better things than what he is. So uh, now now I'll see myself out. <laughs> um, Roy, are you going to
1: surprise me?
2: Too, well, Eric has called me a jaded wrestling fan in the past, and I'm not going to say anything now that's going to make him change his mind. Uh, this absolutely, <laughs> this, this absolutely fucking sucked, quite frankly. Uh, and I just wish that Jr. On commentary was able to say that as well. I know that he wanted to when he spent the entire ten minutes and the aftermath absolutely burying. Yes, him he, the he did. Gym. And uh, quite, quite rightly, he wants to. <laughs> this was fucking stupid. Just. Ugh. And yes, if you really want to look at it closely and break it down to its most literal parts, then and if I can't believe I'm saying this, but if a mannequin head was your tag team partner and it was the legal man and it's the only way you could pin it, why the hell am I even trying to rationalise this? Uh, so <laughs> and it's one thing, and it just makes, I mean, Al it goes back to what you said earlier, but I mean, just Al Snow. I mean, make this guy look like something.
3: Right.
2: He just be if the whole storyline, which is storyline I quite like in a way, that he wants to get a meeting with Vince McMahon He wants to prove himself. I don't mind that. Here, again, for all the people who don't know his ECW work or whatever, they just see this guy putting himself putting himself in a ridiculous situation. And when he's there, he thinks he's doing the pinfall and his head being pinned. He just comes across like an idiot savant without the savant. And that is not how you try to get somebody new over. So yes, this was... um. Yeah. So, what was it with well, Just this has set the business back fifty years. So I think I <laughs> it might be a slightly conservative estimate, but uh, well, <laughs> it's uh, it's good for healthy debate, is it not? Even though it really fucking sucked. Well,
1: my notes was in my notes. I'd written, you know, when something's so bad that it's good. Yes. Th- this wasn't that. This was just <laughs> plain bad. Yes. So, I I say uh, I just uh, I do have to admit the bit. The, there were two moments for me. One I mentioned in in the re- the review of Lawler making sure Head was still in the corner by the tag rope. Like I thought that was that was good, and like the finish in itself, like so, like you know, just someone in the back has just gone. Well, what about if we get a bit of head and shoulders? Like then you can pin him because he's got shoulders. Like that in itself, like is just the most juvenile ridiculous pro wrestling finish I've ever heard of that. I kind of respect the audacity, (laughs) but as a match, this was absolutely horrible. And I do wonder sometimes with wrestling companies, not even just the the WWF, WCW two, sometimes when, when you hire a guy and you're just so quick to just like treat him like, like garbage, not necessarily treat him like garbage, like maliciously, but just give him garbage to work with like don't throw him any bones at all why are you bothering to hire that guy like what possible benefit do you get like they uh, i suppose they would argue like he's on tv with a storyline like that in itself is a plus but if the storyline is just like hot trash then what's the point like who wins in this situation really because it's not the fans, it's not Al Snow, and it's not the company. So I don't really know what the aim is, necessarily. But this was, uh, I, I, I just, I wish I could enjoy it as much as you did, Eric. But I maybe it was just too miserable today, because it was it was bad. I thought it was bad.
3: I guarantee there's one person in that arena who popped, and that was Vince McMahon. <laughs> <Man. laughs>
1: So, uh, next up, we have uh, X Pac accompanied by China taking on Owen Hart in a singles match. Uh, X Pac hits a baseball slide to the outside before Owen could get in the ring to get us started. Back inside, X Pac sent Owen into the corner and charged, but Owen moved. Owen viciously, viciously whipped X Pac into the turnbuckle a few times before following with a backbreaker and a spinning heel kick. Owen hits a chop before following with a fisherman's suplex with a bridge. Which he then followed with a gut, gut wrench suplex. They brought outside the ring, and Owen sends park into the timekeeper's area. Owen front suplexes X park onto the Spanish announce table. Back inside, Owen maintains control, hitting a nice missile, uh, missile drop kick off the top rope. He gets a two count off another suplex, and having been control, in control for almost all of the match, Owen locks on a super hold with China watching on. X-Pac, X-Pac fights his way out and hits a face buster and forces Owen back into the corner. He charges and hits a Bronco buster and a body slam before heading up to the top. Owen recovers and they fight on the top rope with X-Pac getting hung, hung on it, but Owen falling to the mat. With X-Pac outside, Mark Henry runs down and splashes him. Uh, JR tried to sell this as like a monumental like crushing of the man, but uh, it didn't really come off as such to me at least. Uh, China confronts him and then Vader runs down to attack Henry which which was quite comical because he charged into him but just sort of bounced off and Vader sent himself flying which was like, it popped me at least. (laughs) Uh, Back inside the ring, Owen had a sharpshooter locked on X-Pac but China runs in and hits him with a DDT with the referee distracted. X-Pac rolls into the cover which is enough for the free count, so X Pac picks up the win. Uh, Rory, I'll come to you first. What did you make of this uh, this match?
2: Okay, this is more like it. And uh, boy, did we need something like this. And so not a bottle of L'Oreal or Pantene Insights. Just two. Well, I was going to say old pros. I just actually looked this up. X Pac is still he's still only twenty five. It seems like he's been around forever. Owen's oh, still only in his early thirties. Yet yeah, These are two people you can trust to give a good few minutes on pay per view, and uh, and really give you something. Really, very good indeed. I loved it was a very subtle point, but I loved the callback to the King of the Ring '94 match at the very start. But at the beginning of that one, I wanted to kid as he was. Then he gingerly walks to the uh, gingerly walks to the ring after taking the pile drivers from Jarrett, and Owen wipes him out with the uh, with the super splash. And here, X Pac's doing the same to Owen as he comes down the aisle with a baseball slide. I really like that. Uh, they got twice as long as they did at uh, King of the Ring '94, which is still one of the best short matches of all time. Uh, Bob in Mexico will be writing in to disagree, but he's wrong. And this was just a good match. There hasn't really been much of a feud between them. They've just been interfering in each other's matches. It's a, it's a pretty standard pay-per-view build-up. But I don't really mind that too much when it gives these chance uh, these guys a chance to show what they can do on pay-per-view. Yeah, some really nice stuff. Um, again, you can just tell when you've got two people in the ring who are really comfortable working together. Now, they can almost looks like call it on the fly and bust out some new things. I Owens Fisherman suplex, for example, in this match looked mint, and X Pac took it brilliantly. All the whys and wherefores, and do you mind if I don't have the finish? This one was never going to end completely cleanly because that's how faction warfare goes, and with wwF these days, of course the Nation and of course the X were going to get involved somehow. But yeah, this was good. Um, it's X Pac and Owen Hart. It's it, it couldn't be bad if you tried. Yeah memorable no good match yes and i'll take that on this card so far
1: yeah i mean you say it went twice as long as their previous match but you could have gone twice as long again like on this show and they would have delivered that's what it felt like
2: you you give these two 14 15 minutes and you're pushing at least the 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 four star level with these guys as it was it was a solid three and a bit but they really could have uh, pulled out all the stops and given us something great
1: Considering the filler on the show like exactly. that they needed for out, you could have easily done that. Um, Eric, your thoughts on the match? Continuity in wrestling is
3: something that we need to appreciate more. And Rory, you're exactly right. That baseball slide from Pac on to Owen, oh, man, it brought me right back. And I knew exactly from that minute that these guys had thought out what they were doing in this match. Yep. That is something that Owen Hart or X-Pac, because they're both – if you hear about them backstage, you can and we know Xbox a worker in the ring, and no one's got a mind for the business, you know one of those two guys came up with that spot and said, you know, you no, know, however, however else this match is going to end, we're going to do that spot and call it back and let everybody know who's been paying attention for a while that we are too. I appreciate that a lot. That's why Owen Hart's the best, if not one of the best, uh, you know, in the game right now. Um, you know... If you go into these Owen Hart matches anymore with the concession that he's somehow going to get outsmarted and screwed by DX and probably China at this point, and you just know that going in, it's a lot easier to enjoy everything leading up to the finish. So I kind of assumed that was going to happen here because why not? Owen's dumb. The the last six months on television have shown us that, right? So uh, Owen the idiot. Great worker, uh, but still hasn't uh, been able to get somebody get Mark Henry a manager's license or anything like that so he can come down to the ring and help him out. Uh, but anyway, uh, great match, predictable finish, and poor Vader. Um, they tried to make him look like the big bull, and boy, he just got bowled over by Mark Henry, didn't he? That did not look very good for our friend Leon. Um, looks like we're going to have a Vader-Mark Henry match. Uh, At some point, I think there was one on Raw this uh, month that got broken up by Undertaker. So God help us if we get Vader now um, versus Greenest Grassmark Henry. I can only imagine what type of Yokozuna versus Mabel flashbacks we're going to be getting on that one. Um, But back to this match between two qualified and excellent workers, this was good. I wish it had gone longer. I do wish the finish had been cleaner, but you just don't get that anymore. So for what it was, Good. On this card, it stuck out like a sore thumb as being a high work rate match between two guys who can go.
1: Next up, Paul came out for a promo. Uh, this promo was the very de- definition of a time filler. Um, I didn't write it down verbatim, but he basically said that he wouldn't have missed tonight for the world, rambled on for a while, and said that by the end of the night, he will be both the father and the manager of the WWF champion. Next up, we have our second unannounced bonus match of the evening with the New Age Outlaws defending their WWF Tag Team titles against the New Midnight Express, Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart. Uh, the New Midnight Express were still acknowledged as the NWA Tag Team Champions during their entrance. Uh, so this match is history. The first time the WWF Tag Team Champions and the NWA Tag Team Champions have ever faced off with each other. Road Dog and Bob get us started, with Rody taking control with a hip toss and a clothesline, but Bob coming back with one of his own. Billy and Bart tag in, and Ross acknowledges them as brothers and former tag team champions. Uh, they trade near falls briefly before Billy hits a face buster and turns Bart inside out with a clothesline. He tells Bart to suck it, which gets big reaction from the crowd. Rody tags in, he hits a knee drop, ducks a lo- clothesline, but gets hit with a cheap shot from Bob who tags in and the new midnights work over Rody for a while. Uh, they continue with quick tags and double team offense. And Bob hits an elbow off the top for two. They keep Rody isolated, cutting the ring off well and Bart press slams Bob onto roadie. Bob hits a nice drop kick on roadie road dog and, and, tells him to suck it. So Billy Gunn storms the ring and attacks him from behind. Bob slaps on a sleeper holder and road dog who eventually fights out, but gets cut off with a kick. He gets his foot up when Bob tries to come off the top and gets the hot tag. Billy Gunn cleans house on both of the midnights. Cornette hits Billy with a racket with the rest distracted, but this only gets a two count. The match breaks down some more with Road Dogg and Bart brawling outside, distracting the ref. Cornette sneaks into the ring, trying to cheat again with the racket, but Billy catches him. This time, China runs in. She hits Cornette with a low blow. Uh, road dog joins billy inside they hit bob with a double team hot shot for the win to retain their wwf tag team titles uh rory what did you make of our championship match
2: well we've been around uh for nearly two and a half years now and i don't think i've had such continued opprobrium for anything as i have this nwa storyline and it's still going on are they doing this just to annoy me if so it's working once again there's very little to really say about the match it was 10 minutes of Average nineteen ninety eight WWF action. I mean, both. I mean, Bob Holly is okay, but there's not a whole lot to him. And Billy Gunn and Road dog are all bravado. There's not much in the ring there at all. But bravado gets you so far these days. And the, the guys are just so over; they could get away with doing the very little they do in the ring, and it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to mark them down for it. They're there for people to chant along to, once again, chant along to their catchphrases at the start before the match. And that's 98% of the job done. Anything else after that is really a bonus. Just bang average match. Once again, China getting involved. There's really not a whole lot to say. It's Just going through this card now, it's how vapid so much of it is. I mean, that's more than made up for a bit later on, but... There's so many situations here which are to be summed up very simply as just a match. And this was yet another one, I'm afraid.
1: Eric, your thoughts on the tag title match? Man, this
3: is really disappointing because this was obviously a filler match, and they had to go with the Midnights, and I get it. Bob Hawley, a loyal soldier. Uh, Bart Gunn, a loyal soldier. You know, two guys have been with the company through thick and thin. Get them on there. Get them a pay-per-view paycheck. Let Cornette do his Smoky Mountain uh, manager shtick. Hell, we've already seen a 15-minute segment dedicated to Memphis wrestling, so why not continue our tour through the east of the United States? But there are so many other people. We talk about the lack of depth, but it doesn't really exist. There are so many other people that could have been given the spot. Steve Blackman, Terry Funk, Scorpio, Bradshaw, who they've been trying to get over for seems like freaking ever now and instead it just goes to this midnight's tag team match against the outlaws where it's there's no question the outlaws are going to retain there's no question how they're going to retain there's no question there's going to be some cornet shenanigans this is just the most basic match they could have put in this spot it does nobody any good the outlaws didn't need this match they didn't even really need to be on the card their function doesn't change. You know, they're not one of these teams that needs to be on every show to be relevant They're the tag team champions. They've, it's just, I don't, I don't understand this decision. If you're going to put a match in to fill some time and, and Chris and Rory, you guys have been a hundred percent correct. that There's been so much filler on this card. Um, I would have much rather than fill it out with something that, that could have been more productive. And, and, you know, a guy like Scorpio, a guy like Bradshaw, um, some of these other people come to mind. But not Bob Hawley and Bart Gunn and this stupid gimmick. I mean, this was just the match was fine. The match really was fine. If this was the, you know, the the match before intermission on a house show that I went to at the Coliseum uh, down the road here, that would be awesome. But not on
2: a pay per view that I'm paying money for. Come on. Just quickly, could they not have put more King of the Ring matches on the show? I mean, I said no, we only got the semi final and final. The two semifinals lasted less than ten minutes in total. Could we not have done that? Could have put Savio Vega here. <laughs> oh, yeah. careful care, care <laughs> what, care, care what we wish. Okay. No,
3: I, I, I think, I mean, if you're going to have a bunch of five-minute matches, why not have those five-minute matches work towards an end goal? You're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, this was just, you said it, Eric, but this was like, it just was the definition of a house show tag. Like, it was fine. It was tame. It was safe. It was boring. It was fine. It was a house show match. Like, they they didn't do anything um and this is slap bang in the middle of a pay-per-view like and and as you've quite rarely pointed out they've got guys they they've got guys that they've been working on like that like they've treated blackman as an example that you gave better than they've treated this new al snow character well new to them al snow character like um, they like you could give him a, a five-minute win over someone or as or you said Bradshaw or something like that like they were on the last pay-per-view card they're not on this one that there are guys you could you could give to this and it wouldn't have hurt the outlaws not to be on it and if you did want the outlaws to be on it it didn't need to go over 10 minutes like it it, it was just it was like I don't fault anyone in the match at all um really I don't know who I'd thought the but from the person who decided to give a house show match 10 minutes on a pay-per-view, really. Because um, this was very tame and it was a, a boring intermission on what, up until this point, hadn't been a great show. With that, we move into our finals of the King of the Ring tournament. <coughs> um, Triple H heads down to ringside to join the commentary team. Uh, for the final, as he is the champion, the the king of the ring from last year, I should say. Um, So, yeah, we have The Rock taking on Ken Shamrock. After a slow stalling start, Rock takes control with strikes before being cut off with a kick to the chest and bailing to the outside. Uh, Back inside the ring, the action stays at a plodding pace before Rock heads back outside and over to Triple H on commentary. They square up and Triple H spits his water out over The Rock, which causes a quick scuffle. Uh, Shamrock beats Rock down on the outside But Rock hits a low blow Which the ref misses uh, Back inside the ring Shamrock hits a vertical suplex for two They head back outside the ring With Shamrock sending Rock into the steel barriers um, But Rock comes back with a clothesline Rock rocks Shamrock across the guardrail They head inside And Rock hits a nice sp- swinging neckbreaker Which gets a two count Shamrock starts to fight back But Rock ducks a punch and hits a DDT for two The Rock slaps on a chin lock. The Shamrock fights out, but is put back down with a reverse elbow. The Rock hits his elbow drop, theatrical elbow drop in the middle of the ring, which gets a big pop, but this only gets two. Uh, Back up, the Rock hits a tornado DDT to cut off Shamrock. Uh, They collide in the middle of the ring and both go down. The referee begins counting and gets to nine. Before they both get back to their feet, Shamrock hits a lovely power slam, but this also only gets two. Shamrock does a clothesline and hits a fisherman suplex for a two count. Rock cuts him off with an uppercut, forces Shamrock into the corner before running into an elbow, but manages to hit a power slam of his own. Shamrock hits a great gut gut wrench suplex for two. They exchange clotheslines and Rock gets a two count with a hot shot. He takes his frustration out that that this was only a two count on the ref and this momentary lapse in focus gives Ken Shamrock the opportunity he needs to slap on the ankle lock, putting the rock in the submission in the middle of the ring with the rock tapping out, submitting after 14 minutes to count Ken Shamrock, the 1998 king of the ring. Eric, uh, what did you make of this match and what do you make of this this win for Ken Shamrock? What does it mean for him moving forward?
3: Sure, I'll, I'll take those in turn. You know, as far as the match goes, this really was classic 1998, you know, Shema's WWF, and that the match inside the ring was not good at all, really. I mean, it seems like, okay, it was fine, but it seems like these two guys have been wrestling since the beginning of time. I know that's not true, but it's been six or eight months now. You want to stretch it all the way back to, you know, before Survivor Series 97. And you would hope that in what seems to be what's going to be the – the final final blow off to this long feud these two have had that they would be able to put a competent 10 to 15 minute match together and they just didn't this match i mean chris you said plotting and that's exactly the right word to use this was a very long and plotting 14 minute match for two guys who really don't have an excuse to have a match like this seeing as their qualifying matches earlier in the night were well over an hour ago and each only lasted about five minutes. It didn't really feature all that much action. So, you know, if we want to say the guys were tired, maybe that's true, but that's a conditioning issue and they should be expected to go. And this match just was slow. It had a lot of rest holds and uh, it just did never really got into gear for me. I was very disappointed at the quality of match. These two are supposed to have and what seems to be the blow off that said the stuff going on outside of the ring, uh, was, was pretty fun. I mean, it looks like we're headed to a rock triple H, uh, feud, and that could be fun. Um, those two guys are, you know, kind of on the same level now rocks, probably a little bit ahead, but maybe rock can, uh, bring triple H up and kind of expand that upper mid card to upper card, hopefully down the road in a year or two or three for these guys. It seems to be what their goal is. And then just to point out China on Spanish commentary, chi- <laughs> You know, we've seen, we've seen her, uh, you know, negotiating with the Bariquas on television and things, and I always just get a pop when you see this this woman who doesn't speak, doesn't really move, and just kind of and, and, and beats dudes up, but then, oh, I'm just going to slide over here and speak perfect Spanish. It's just awesome. I, I just get a kick out of that. And as far as, as Ken Shamrock goes winning the King of the Ring, it really is a mixed bag, isn't it? Because, you know, we've seen we've seen it happen where a guy like Mabel— Uh, Doesn't really do much with it. And then we see it, and and to a lesser extent, you know, Owen Hart was really, you know, boosted up into the mid card with his uh, King of the Ring win, but he's never really been able to escape that. But then you see guys like Austin, who, I mean, for crying out loud, uh, that that history doesn't need to be rewritten. Brett, you know, was really able to capitalize on the King of the Ring uh, in 93. And so we'll see what happens. I don't, I just don't know if Ken's a guy. I don't know that he's had a really good match that's met expectations that I can remember. I just don't know whether Ken in the ring is somebody to be relied upon uh to to really carry a a solid upper mid to to main card match. So we'll see what happens with Ken uh but you know history has shown us this could go good or this could go bad seeing as the storyline for the match was really Rock Triple H and Ken was almost an afterthought. Mm, I'm not sure.
1: You make a good point with Shamrock there because like it, as soon as you said you couldn't qu- quite think of like a great Shamrock match that he, he's really led, before you finish your sentence, I immediately thought of his match with Michaels in the main event of the pay-per-view from December. But then, I mean, sure Michaels can get a match of that quality out of like most professional wrestlers, a motivated Shawn Michaels who wants to have a good match is going to get a good match out of someone who's competent. So you can't really even give Shamrock any credit for that necessarily. So you do make a good point really about does he have sort of the potential to take this anywhere? Um, Rory, over to you. Same two questions, really. Thoughts on the match and and, and Shamrock and what this means for him?
2: Yeah, this was a real double edged sword. The match went nearly 15 minutes, and it had to. From a logical perspective, if you have two wrestlers who get to the final of a tournament, then by implication, they're both extremely good. And again, in kayfabe terms, it would make sense they would have a long match. It would take one person a good amount of time to break down the other or vice versa to get the win. So the match going 15 minutes, in that respect, I didn't really have a problem with. But the big issue, and you guys have hinted at it, these two can't go 15 minutes. I mean, Rock hasn't really got a heel in-ring style yet. His, his mannerisms are good. His expressions are good. His selling is still pretty good as well. But I still can't really buy him on offense, really. I still don't think he's got that settled down. And he's this has been his character for a year now. And I'm quite concerned at how long that's actually taken him to get harnessed. And Shamrock's style is a style I like to watch. Again, it's, it's very different, and it's not the cookie-cutter stuff that we see from a lot of people these days. But there aren't many people in there he can actually really bounce that style off. Again, the match with Michaels, as you as you said there, Chris, that, that was very good, but well, Michaels is Michaels. <laughs> it's, it's almost unfair comparison. I really do appreciate what Ken is trying to do, but he just hasn't got the people with him <sighs> who can really bring out the best of him. He he sticks up like a, a sore thumb and not necessarily in a good way. And when you take in the fact as well, he hasn't really got much personality. His promo the day after this was no great shakes. I do fear for him. And also, one thing I want to mention, here he has beaten The Rock cleanly at long last, which is good. He was hosed at the Rumble. He was hosed at Mania. He's done it now. Good. But I'd like to hear what you guys think about this. He beat The Rock cleanly, but in the King of the Ring final, right? Rock, the Rock is still the intercontinental champion. That is what their feud was all about, and it have been going back ever since The Rock won it in December. And reading between the lines, it suggests to me that Rock is still above Shamrock on the totem pole. I think the powers that be at the WWF still see the IC belt as more important than something like The King of the Ring. I think they're probably right, but I do find it really quite fascinating that they've given Shamrock this kind of a sop of winning King of the Ring, and that wasn't his character motivation for the last six months. And I just wonder how important winning King of the Ring really is these days. I thought the same with Helmsley last year too. But it is what it is. Shamrock was probably the right person to win it with the, the four guys who were left in the semi-final. The, the Rock again didn't need to win this one. He's got bigger things coming his way well if they play it right with his feud with Triple H. But uh, I fear for Shamrock. I really do. I'm I'm worried he's already peaked. And he hasn't really even got there yet. It's uh, it's something they've got to look at very carefully.
3: No, you make a really good point there. I'm going to try to make a soccer slash football analogy here that, that I think kind of points the picture. And it, in a sense, it's like if we want to be in kayfabe here, you know, the King of the Ring tournament almost doesn't count in canon against your win-loss record. So, for example, I know you all have your, your country or region-specific leagues over there, then you have your Champions League. And... It almost feels like this is almost some type of a, a Champions League or non Euro league or non Spanish League tournament that doesn't really count against your 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 table or your fixture or however you, whatever you guys call it. Right. Um, you know, on your main league. Man, you can go over and lose by eight goals in the Champions League, but they can still win the, the Premier League. I know I'm 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 you know being very loose with the details here, but that's almost what this feels like here. We've seen the Rock lose to Ken in every match that doesn't count. Survivor series matches, King of the Ring matches. That every time that belt's on the line, The Rock wins. I don't think this win does anything for Ken because I don't think this win counts against Ken's, or counts for Ken's wins uh, win loss record, or counts against The Rock.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. Where where the only sort of change I'd make to it is that rather than this being the Champions League, this this would be a an inferior cup competition, this should be the football league cup. Like sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> um, aside from that, yeah, there's almost like the perfect analogy. He, he's won the football league cup final against the rock, but ultimately the rock still had him in, in the premier league. Um, right. And that does make a lot of sense because I, I think they are right to see if you are ranking sort of titles or, not not necessarily not just title belts but titles within the WWF for me personally I would I would even if you hit a reset button and every championship and every title was completely vacant and you were just going to put them in sort of a prestigious order of prestige I would have the intercontinental belt ahead of winning the king of the ring for me personally I would feel like that because there's more you can do with, it, with a title belt as opposed to winning a tournament that's at, like sort of an annual tournament. But like, unless you're going to follow it full whack and go for like the, the King gimmick, like what, what can you do with the kick? Like once you've won the King of the ring, that's it. Like but where do you go with that? Unless it is using the King of the ring to transition to be a number one contender for a title belt. So as a vehicle for getting someone over, it could be great if you have like a star making performance throughout a tournament, but tournaments generally in like long-term development of people, I I think they're becoming less and less relevant. Um, And this is probably the fact that Shamrock's won. This is probably a reflection of that. And the sort of throwing him a bone because he needs something because he's been fairly directionless and had quite a few losses as both of you've pointed out to the rock over the course of 1998. Um, so they've given him something but if they really felt this was like something major then considering they're not doing a lot with Shamrock you could have given this to someone else someone they wanted to do more with and the fact that they went with Shamrock probably speaks volumes about how they view it really as a a vehicle for developing someone's character and and storyline progression Mm -hmm.
3: Well, um, in in in, sure. in in 94 and 95, it almost seemed like they were headed to a model where almost like the Royal Rumble winner gets a shot at WrestleMania, the, the King of the Ring winner was going to get a title shot at, at SummerSlam. And that's always made sense to me as something bigger for the Royal Rumble or for the King of the Ring winner to achieve. And they've clearly gone away from that. And you make a great point where it's like this, it's a meaningless, you know, no pun intended crown, a meaningless title if it doesn't present opportunities for anything bigger. So yeah, I think the I think the what the focus of the King of the Ring might have been at one point is has been lost in history.
1: And if it was the case, well obviously storyline wise it wouldn't make sense necessarily anyway, but if this was if the King of the Ring did lead you to the main event of SummerSlam, challenging for the WWF title, then Shamrock wouldn't have been in the final. No, like, no way. So that's storyline wise it wouldn't have made sense for him to be anyway, but even that side, he wouldn't have been in the picture. So it does speak volumes about how they view this as a tournament and probably how they view Shamrock moving forward. Um, as a match. Um, I don't think I was quite as down as it on this matches. Both of you. Like if you, this was like six minutes worth of action stretched out over 14, um, in that and all of the action pretty much came in the last 6 minutes. So if you were just to cut the first 8 minutes or so off, this would have been quite an entertaining 5-6 minute match I thought. Um like really it was a match of two halves like boring another football or, or soccer cliche. Um yeah, I, um I quite enjoyed the last 5 minutes or so. Um but yeah, the the first half was very ponderous and um didn't do much to lift the sort of average state of this card so far. With that, we move on to our Hell in a Cell match between The Undertaker and Mankind. Uh, Mankind comes out first. He has a steel chair, which he throws onto the roof of the cell uh, and follows it up there. He climbed to the top of the cell and stands on the roof. Uh, Taker comes out. Uh, He tries climbing the cell, going to meet Mankind up there. He gets halfway before Mankind attacks, throwing strikes, but uh, Taker forces Mankind back uh, and manages to climb all the way to the top. So the match begins and both men are standing, brawling on top of the cell. Uh, Mankind uses the chair that he threw up there. He nails Taker with a couple of hard chair shots. Uh, They fight their way across the cell. At one point, uh, Taker steps on a spot that didn't seem particularly well put together because it completely gave way, Uh, but no harm came of it and uh, everyone was okay, thankfully. Uh, Mankind looked like he was setting up for a DDT on the chair, on the roof of the cell, but Taker fought free with punches. Uh, JR, on commentary, he says... They are right above us, folks, and I don't like it. I I don't like it a damn bit. Suddenly, Taker grabs Mankind, and there's no real way for me to say this without putting it bluntly. He just throws him off the roof of the cell. Uh, so Mankind get launched off on the announce table side from the top of the cell, uh, all the way down through the Spanish announce table. Um, I can't possibly overstate the brutality or the sort of sickening mesmerizing visual of his body just falling through the air. The, the crowd in the arena, the, the live crowd, I don't, I think there was a delay on the reaction because he falls and crashes. And then there's like a second of silence and then just like a wave of just not euphoria, but just visceral reaction just spreads throughout the arena when they sort of realize what's happened. Um, JR screams, uh, w- as God is my witness, he is broken in half. Oh. Uh, and mankind is just laying motionless under the remnants of what used to be the Spanish announce table. And we see a replay from a camera, which was at floor level. And this really just shows how completely insane this was. You could watch it, the replay a hundred times. It would never not shock you. And it would never not stun you. It was like a incredibly unique visual. Um, I'm sure you will have seen it. If not, go out of your way to see it. Uh, the match uh, continues like with uh, Mankind laid out on the floor. Uh, the announcer's doing an excellent job selling this. Uh, referees, agents, Terry Funk, Vince McMahon, they all ran down to the ringside amongst a crew of people who have come out from the back to help Mankind. Uh, the cage is raised with Undertaker still on top, but so they can get a stretcher round, to, round by the ring and to Mankind. He's loaded onto the stretcher, reeled round the, wing, uh, the ring and up the ramp towards the entrance. Uh, Taker begins climbing down from the now lowered cell. And we cut back to the ramp and we see that Mankind is standing, having fought himself free of the stretcher. And he's battling with medical staff to try and return to the match. Uh, Jim Ross asks, how the hell is he standing? At the exact same point, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, Mankind does break free and again begins climbing back up the cell and the crowd erupts. Uh, Taker climbs back to the top of the cell on his side and they meet on the roof again. Taker hits a headbutt and a right hand before Taker grubs uh, mankind and he hits a choke slam. The choke slam, uh, Foley falls all the way through the roof of the cell with an entire sort of segment of the cell just completely giving way. Um, so he falls through the roof all the way to the ring. Uh, Lawler's call um, is just brilliant. It feels like a, a, an authentic reaction. He just says, Quite poignantly, that's it. He's dead. Um, and Ross bemoans, "Will somebody stop the damn match?" Taker climbs down um, from the roof into the ring. Uh, the people who were trying to help Man climb previously are all there now, trying to help him again. Terry Funk included. Terry Funk's trying to attend to Foley, so Taker hits him with a choke slam. Uh, this bump through the cell to the ring was in itself absurd, let alone after what we'd already seen from the top of the cell uh we get an unbelievable camera shot of mankind he's smiling looking into the camera he's covered in blood bleeding from the mouth bleeding from the nose and he has a tooth stuck through his nostril the match continues believe it or not and taker beats mankind down with steel steps on the outside before trying to dive through the middle rope but mankind falls out of the way foley then takes control of the match He launches Taker into the cell before hitting a pile driver on a steel chair in the ring for a near fall. Taker is busted open bad by this. Mankind hits a leg drop on the steel chair draped across Taker, followed by a double arm DDT. Mankind then heads outside under the ring and he comes back in with a bag of thumbtacks. Mankind pours the thumbtacks out over the ring. He tries to send Taker back into the tax, but ends up instead locking on a mandible claw. Taker powers out of it with mankind on his back, walks over to the tax and just drops backwards, powering mankind into them. I've just written one word, hideous. Uh, Taker then chokeslams mankind into the thumb tax because once clearly wasn't enough. Mankind pops up from this. He walks over to her straight into a tombstone pile driver, which is enough for the free to mercifully bring a close to this match. Uh, Jim Ross says on commentary that he's never seen anything like this in his entire career, and I'd be inclined to agree. Uh, Eric, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, where to begin? What do you make of the match, I guess?
3: Um, this was, this was a, an epic played out over three acts, and that first toss off the cage fully nullified everything in the night that had come before it. Just unbelievable. And then you think, well, what if he had missed or what if it hadn't gone perfectly? And let's emphasize, Undertaker throwing mankind off of the cage went as perfectly as it could have gone. Fully hit that table. He kind of slid and went through it. And to the extent that that man was able to save any part of his body after that first throw, he did it. And then you think, oh, that's it. You know, the king has been slain, curtain down. That's the end of the match for sure, right? And it would have been a really interesting booking decision to just have a match end like that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But, you know, they've never done it before, and both guys are working hurt. Cool. You know, why not have the best spot in the history of wrestling, happen 90 seconds into a match, and end it. Of course, it makes a lot of sense, especially with the history these guys have had. But no, the curtain comes back up, Foley comes back through it, metaphorically speaking. And then, truly, the most grotesque bump I've ever seen in my life, watching professional wrestling, falling through the cell onto the ring. And it is not a trampoline. It is plywood and metal with a little bit of give, but Foley didn't give. He fell ass over tea kettle and he didn't bounce. It's almost like if you've ever been jumping on a trampoline and your knees go out from under you, that's what it looked like when Foley fell. He didn't bump. He fell and hit a a surface. Well, that's got to be the end of it, right? Nope. And then they just keep going and somehow Mick Foley pulls it together and Undertaker who we can't forget is working with a severe (laughs) injury too, pulls it together. And then they have what truly was a really high quality five or 10 minute hardcore match inside, finally inside the cell. Right. And then the thumbtacks and it was about at that point where I thought, okay, like they they just decided that they're just going to do everything they can in this match everything they can to make this memorable, and Foley not only gets slammed into the thumbtacks, but he manages to roll through them to really emphasize the agony and the pain that he was suffering. I don't know how I feel about this match after watching it. Certainly the most spectacular bump I've ever seen, and the most gruesome bump I've ever seen in a match coming 10 minutes apart And I was glib earlier when talking about Jim Ross, but truly here, Jim Ross will be canonized or should be with some of these calls that he had. I'm trying not to steal everything about this match so that Rory has something to talk about and we don't go on for four hours, but I just, this was an awesome match and it saved the card and it's going to be remembered forever. I just hope that they don't go find a way to go beyond what these guys did in this match it was almost too much, and I worry, for as spectacular as this was, that this is going to set such an unattainable standard for what matches have to be or can be moving forward. You know, was it, is this something that should be uh, duplicated? I don't think so. As a wrestling fan, this was amazing. As a wrestling, I guess, commentator and occasional critic, I worry what this match signals for the future because a new level has been reached, and it's really hard to go back once something like this has happened. So fantastic. Go out of your way to see it. Uh, But uh, just a little bit of of concern that those two bumps are going to set a standard that nobody should
2: feel compelled to reach.
1: Rory, over to you.
2: Did you a boy? Okay. All right. There's only one place to start, and that's at the very, very beginning. Look at all the things, just some of the things that Mick Foley has done for our entertainment over the last fair few years, ever since he joined WCW in 1990. He lets Mil Maskras, notoriously unpopular, unprofessional Mil Maskres, <laughs> drop dropkick him in the face, so he takes the nasty plunge on the back of his head on concrete on A Clash <laughs> of the Champions he lets Vader legitimately punch him in the face 20 times on an episode of WCW Saturday night. The next week, he takes a pal on the floor from the same person. 1994, he has a match with Sabu at ECW in which the stipulation was effectively come along to watch this match because somebody is going to die. 1995, he has a King of the Death match tournament in which the final sees the ring exploding. And if you've listened month after month, you know everything he's done in the WWF. And even there, those are just the potted highlights. None of those that he or anybody else has done can come, and I really hope will come, even remotely close to what we saw in this spectacle, which I'm, for the sake of argument, going to call a match. I thought he was dead. I saw this live. I legitimately thought he was dead. I honestly thought something had gone wrong and that was not the planned spot. Taker was not supposed to throw him off the cage. And the reason I thought that is because if you go back and watch it as live, if you can, the camera, the main camera doesn't actually catch up with Foley. You don't actually see him hit the table. Whether they didn't know how fast he was going to fall or not, I don't know. But you do not actually see him in your shot until he crashes the table. I thought, A, why are they doing this spot? And B, oh my God, it's gone wrong. Then he started to stir, and at least I thought, okay, we're going to get something here. I can see why they've done this. They've already been around the horn on pay-per-view a lot over the last two years. They're pretty much going in cold. There's no real feud. They've got to do something to make people care, but they've gone and done this. A huge spot. Okay, take Mick to the back. Let's end it right here. Give him a couple of months to recuperate. Then we can have maybe our final match after SummerSlam between these two or something. But we don't wait two months, we wait two minutes, and he's back off the stretcher, and he's climbing the cage again. And he takes a choke slam, which the cage just completely gives way, and we mustn't overlook this as well, the chair which he had with him comes down and hits him in the face. Oh, brutal. There is no, maybe, maybe he was supposed to be choke slammed through the roof. I can guarantee you now there was no chance in hell that the the chair was meant to come down and bash him in the face like that. That is just something you cannot legislate for. And I was there. That's it. He's dead, said Lord. And I was like, yep. If he wasn't done before, he is now. And it only happened about three or four days ago as we taped this. But JR's call will pass into folklore. Enough's enough Will somebody stop the damn match. That's, yep. not, that's not a commentator talking. That is a human being genuinely concerned for another human being's welfare. This is entertainment, folks, but the lines need to be drawn somewhere as as how i interpreted that and then they somehow managed to have a decent to good garbage brawl how the hell was he even managing that with a tooth sticking out of his nose with him smiling for god's sake and then he brings out the thumbtacks i mean what the hell i was watching i was freaking out here i was like okay just somebody just put an end to this and if you watch you can see tim white who was the referee when the thumbtacks come out you know, he's a aghast. He's like, no, we might have talked about this before, but you're not actually going to do this, are you? And they did. They did it twice. And he takes a tombstone to thankfully bring this to the end. How on earth do you assess this? I've already seen some people online on One Wrestling and places like that. The boy Herb, some of his comment pieces. People have been saying that there was nothing to this match. That it only had two big spots and that was it. And I'm like, yeah, but they are the match. That's like saying if you take all the arm drags out of Flairby Steamboat, you've got no match there. Do you see what I'm getting at? So in a way, this... (sighs) I'm just thinking of it now. Is this the greatest match I've ever seen? Well, apart from WrestleMania 13, obviously, but, you know. But is this the greatest match I've ever seen? (laughs) I, I... We talk so often on this particular card about how, how the matches haven't been memorable everything that happened in this match will live with me for the rest of my life and i'm sure mankind will feel it for the rest of his life and we can debate up and down i even alluded to it a few minutes ago whether this even constitutes being a wrestling match i could listen to arguments on it and i could understand them but I've never seen anything remotely like this in my life. I sure as hell hope I never see anything close to it again. But this this is what passes for professional wrestling, and I can't think of a more complete example of where the business is these days. And I wouldn't want anybody else in there but mankind. And we've got to give Undertaker some credit as well. You know, he was going in injured. He had to try to make these these spots safe and. Let's not overlook his role in this. Uh, but I didn't want... You only want this to be Mick Foley in this match. And if somehow you haven't seen this go out of your way to do so, and don't expect a pleasure cruise. Uh, forget everything you ever knew about pro wrestling, whether you started watching it a day ago, whether you started watching it 20 years ago. It it really is all there. Whoa.
1: I, I, I don't... Really know what else to say, but this is just like the epitome of a style of wrestling. Like, this is a, a, the epitome of the spectacle of wrestling. Like, I don't even if they do replicate it, like, or not even them, like, if someone tries to outdo this, like, it won't be the same. Um, this is like an historic bloodbath that people will talk about forever. People will be talking about this 20 years from now and be completely in awe of it and Mick Foley, the man, deserves an unprecedented amount of respect Um, and I like what you said Rory, like is this the best match I've ever seen and I I, I mean we don't really ever do star ratings on, on this podcast but if I was to give this match a star rating, I don't think I can give it anything apart from five like and I don't I don't even know
2: that I enjoyed it. Yeah. But well like, just quickly, what what else could you in any form of professional wrestling match, what else could you want to see? And by that very later, yeah, that's a five star match, right? Like it it's a five star
1: spectacle. Like I don't know if that means it's a good professional wrestling match. I don't know what it means really for the business or the future and everything Eric alluded to and like what wrestlers who are wannabe wrestlers who are like 12 years old who are watching this will do when they're 30 years old. Like I don't really know what it means aside from that mankind and Mick Foley because of what he went through, what he endured, what he did and probably what he volunteered for on this night will be immortalized within pro wrestling fandom apart from that i don't really know anything else but i don't i i think this is like an an enduring iconic moment that has like gone further than any other moment i've covered even for me and i wasn't on the show so maybe i'd feel differently had i spoken about at this length but maybe more than Montreal in terms of just like a moment, like there's no visual with Montreal as striking as, as that first bump off the, off the cell, like, and, and maybe like there's more to sink your teeth into with Montreal for sure. But like, as a, as a visual moment, just like three seconds of what's happened. Like, I don't, I don't know that this will ever be topped. Um, yeah, it was just, uh, I don't really know where we go from here on the podcast, but uh, I don't know how you plan for the match to go this way and you you don't put it on last. I guess knowing what they know with the finish of the main event and just the fact that it's for the title, maybe it has to go on last regardless, but I don't know how you don't close the show with this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so with that, we still do have one more match to go of the evening. Our main event of the evening, which sees Stone Cold Steve Austin defending his WWF championship against Kane in a first blood match. Um, and if Kane loses, he will set himself on fire. So I suppose at the very least, we do have a chance at topping some of the brutality that we'd seen in this hell in a cell. Yeah. It's, considering the fact Austin had spent three days the week leading up to this match in hospital with a, uh, Um, injured and ill and everything like that. I don't know what they could possibly do in this main event to follow what we've just seen, but we shall see. Kane and Paul Bear are out first. Uh, Austin comes out. He has his right elbow heavily taped up and bandaged. He wastes no time going right after Kane, ducking a clothesline and hitting a fez press. Uh, at Laying out Kane with a belt shot. The crowd firmly behind Austin here, but Kane got the advantage, choking him in the corner. Kane sets up for a tombstone, but Austin escapes and sends him outside, landing some hard right hands and slamming Kane into the steps. I'm not sure quite sure how Austin intends on busting Kane open here, considering the massive leather mask across his face. The cell began to lower around the ring, as Ross cries that we've seen enough of it for one night. Kane chokes Austin on the floor under the cell, which has almost been completely lowered. Austin escapes. The cell lowers completely, and Kane slams Austin into the cell wall repeatedly, eventually mixing it up by sending Austin into the steel steps. Austin's been busted open on his back, but JR and Lawler both note that this doesn't count. Lawler says it will have to be from the head or the face. Austin sends Kane into the door of the cell, and it be, uh, and the cell begins to raise. Kane eventually slivers out to prevent being lifted up by the cage and they brawl down the ramp. Austin sends Kane into barriers and sets up for a driver, but Kane reverses it into a back body drop. We see a shot of Vince McMahon watching proceedings from his luxury box. Kane suplexes Austin on the entrance ramp before sending him into the lighting and guardrails around the stage. They fight back to the ring and Austin sends Kane into the exposed turnbuckle. Back outside, Austin slams Kane into more steel guardrails and launches him into the timekeeper's area. Kane pushes Austin's, Austin off and into the referee as the action heads back inside. Kane hits a clothesline off the top rope. He goes for it again, but Austin moves out of the way, stomping away on Kane before sending him once again into the exposed buckle. Mankind runs down into the ring with a chair as if he has not been through enough tonight so far. Austin catches him with a stunner. Kane takes advantage of the distraction to look for a chokeslam, but Austin counters and hits him with a stunner too. Austin has a chair in his hand, and at this moment, Taker makes his way from backstage down to the ring. Mankind's back on his feet. Taker goes to nail Mankind with the chair, but he ducks and Taker hits Austin, who's holding a steel chair of his own. Uh, And so Taker swings the chair, Mankind ducks, Austin's holding the chair. Taker's chair hits Austin's chair, which hits Austin in the face. This busts Austin open badly. Taker puts the ref back inside the ring for whatever reason and covers him in gasoline. Kane uh, recovers and takes Taker out with a chair. Austin lays Kane out with a disgustingly hard chair shot to the head, but the revived El Hebner notices that Austin's been busted open and is bleeding profusely and calls for the bell. Kane is declared the new WWF champion after 14 minutes of wild brawling. The show quickly goes off the air with Vince looking on very pleased with himself. Uh, Rory, I'll come to you first. What do you make of our main event?
2: Well, there's there's nothing else they could do to even come close to considering to top what we saw before, uh, even if Kane had set himself on fire. I still don't think it would have topped it. But you know what, though? People have said that that telegraph, the ending... After we've just, just seen, it wouldn't have entirely shocked me if Kane had set himself on fire for some reason. So there you are. Um, this was a uh, – the decent brawl is probably all we could hope for here, and that's that's what we got. No more, but no less. box again, I've said it so often during the course of the show, just bog-standard stuff. Nobody's really out there really trying to push the boundaries because you know somebody's done that and nobody's catching up with him. So they just went up there and had a pretty regular punch trading match. I mean, Austin, obviously, with his injury, he looked like he was smuggling Max Minion under his arm there at some point. So he was never going to be going full ass on this one. Kane is Kane. He is what he is. And the only real intrigue here was how they were going to get to the finish, which was... <sighs> My goodness me. Well, first off, the fact that Mankind was there. Just just stop, quite frankly. Just just just, just, <laughs> just just stop, man. Just Somebody talk to this fella. You know, we, we can write something else. We have got people in the back. You don't need to get involved. Undertaker can try and hit Kane with a chair and hit Austin or something. They're trying to play up, and they kind of hinted at the next day too that Undertaker, let's say, might not be all he seems and may, may, maybe might be edging towards a character change. I'm not sure. I do think it looked quite good. Some people have said it looked a bit hokey, the chair shot rebounding to Austin. I think they did a decent job of it. And I guess Austin loses without chopping. Okay, so that's fine. But two points here: one, all of this to pop a rating? No thanks. Well, two, uh, a you can't cut Kane open. <laughs> so how are you going to win a first blood match? And the thing with the first blood match to make yet another uh, soccer reference today: that should be a. It shouldn't be a stipulation. When somebody bleeds in a match, that's when you really take things into the next level. It shouldn't be where things stop. It's like on a match that took place in the World Cup the same day as this France Paraguay in the second in the second round. Now uh, Laurent Blanc scored a golden goal in extra time and that ended the match straight away. I'm like, well, no, somebody scoring in extra time should really fire things up for the last 20 minutes or whatever. Paraguay come back on the attack, but they were out. So there you go. And yeah, somebody bleeding. Uh, that's 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 next level stuff. That's that doesn't end the match for me. But again, they had to come up with something for. Austin to lose because they wanted him to lose in order to pop a rating for him to win it back the next day. And the first blood match was what they came up with. So it was fine. I didn't like all the cage shenanigans. That was a bit stupid, but it, again, did what they wanted it to do. But regardless of what happened tomorrow, I would not have taken the total off Austin here.
1: Eric, your thoughts on our main event?
2: Uh, This was
3: a very good match in execution. And what I mean by that is we know now that stone cold can go out there and have a high quality brawling style schmas match that protects his neck with anybody. And the fact that he's in there with somebody like Kane who has proven to be pretty good. Um, and the fact that Austin was in there with Foley for the last couple of months, uh, he's had good opponents and this match was worked well for what it was considering, um, that Kane isn't exactly a character that can go in there and have a technical wrestling match. Austin physically can't, both with his elbow and his neck. And they still had to fill out the 245 with a 20-minute match here, a 15-minute match, I guess it was. So that was, the match was good. I, I cannot express, based on what happened on the Raw the next night, how dumb the first blood stipulation was. I understand that the entire purpose... Was as Rory said, get Kane the belt without Austin doing the JOB. I don't think it hurts Austin if you have the same exact finish that you had in this match, except Undertaker lays out Austin with that chair shot after the brutal 15 minute match that Austin and Kane have had. Kane gets the cheap one, two, three, and still becomes the champion and you don't have to explain this first blood stipulation and J.R. doesn't have to spend the entire match clarifying the rules and they don't have to say oh well no Austin's back is bleeding but it's actually just your forehead and then it's like well Kane wears a mask so he can never bleed on his and so the entire conceit just falls apart the minute you put any scrutiny towards it and if as we saw the next night on Raw if the only thing the Undertaker was really concerned about was preventing Kane from lighting himself on fire um and maybe sowing the seeds for an undertaker heel turn of course but if as the undertaker said the only thing he was concerned about was preventing kane from lighting himself on fire then undertaker the whole the whole match could have gone exactly the same except you don't have a first blood match you just have a normal you know brawl like austin's had since he won the belt i thought the 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 accepting the first blood stipulation made austin look like an idiot having the stipulation didn't make any sense the announcers even buried it. How do you get Kane to bleed exactly? And with the way that the, everything was resolved and kind of undone, at least from a belt perspective, the next night, I just I can't get the sour taste of this dumb first blood stipulation out of my mouth. Good match, good execution, good storyline, but man, I just I still haven't heard a good explanation of why they needed this damn stipulation other than wanting to keep Austin like. 87 level Hulkamania strong.
1: The other thing that sort of frustrated me about this, this whole ordeal. And you mentioned about how the undertaker on raw alluded to, where he's concerned about Kane setting himself on fire and preventing that. If that is the undertaker's only motive, then he doesn't need to come out because mankind's there to help Kane. Like, it, like so if mankind had come out and uh, and helped Cain, that's fine but the taker coming down to lay mankind out like what benefit does that have to to Cain and avoiding being set on fire like i know that's where it leads into potential undertaker a hill turn down the road but like just the whole thing is just convoluted um and with austin you can just have a fun exciting chaotic brawl know it's going to be executed perfectly and it's going to be entertaining you don't need to over complicate things you don't need to make the stipulations so convoluted and then as a result so many storyline aspects are weakened because of this one convoluted finish um there's other ways as well. If you don't want him to physically be pinned, you could do like a last man standing match or something like that. But where, so there's no actual pinfall, but it isn't a first blood. Because that if, if there's no first blood match, and it's say, for example, a last man standing match, and you just he gets hit with the chair, he goes down, he's out for a ten count. That's like no different to the outcome of this match except that he doesn't look like a moron for taking a first blood match against a guy who doesn't have anywhere to bleed from like so storyline wise which is normally something that the last three four months i've been like so hot on praising how every aspect of the main event scene in the wwf they get the storylines perfect like they they, they they do the right amount of bullshit basically and they do a good amount of it they execute it well um everything makes sense and when you've got austin on one side and vince on the other and vince has got like a different wrestling foil every month as part of this like evil mr mcmahon character you can do no wrong but this wasn't a disaster but certainly scratched the surface of okay there's actually ways you can get this wrong and you can mess these characters up so this maybe could be like a warning because don't get complacent and overcomplicate and make things convoluted within your main event scene because bell to bell you've got the guys that will make this style of match in the main event work every time and austin will never not be over doing this match in front of a crowd that loves him um Just make sure the storyline aspects are finely tuned to support that to get the most out of it. As a match, I've really enjoyed it. But yeah, some storyline aspects really let it down for me. With that, um, we have finished our review of the 1998 King of the Ring pay-per-view. Rory, I'll come to you first with your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10.
2: Oh my word! So we've used the word so often in both negative and positive connotations. I'm going to use it one more time in my summing up, and that's memorable. There's so much on this show, which you would forget about almost as soon as you'd seen it, and on a show which has what is supposedly an important tournament, and is the let's, let's be honest, it is the fifth biggest pay per view of the year these days. Some even put King of the Ring above Survivor Series, so it's at least at least five, maybe even number four on the list. And there's so much that happens which you don't even, unless, unless you're, I mean, I'm actually looking at the results again here now. There's things on here I could barely even remember us speaking about. We've only been talking about it for an hour or so. It just drifted over my head. But you had a big title change, like it or not. I didn't, but you cannot deny it's big. And taking the title of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Regardless of the reasons, that takes some guts. And if you bought the show, you saw that happen. And of course, you bore witness to the most amazing moment moments I have ever seen as a wrestling fan, almost certainly will ever see as a wrestling fan. I've got to try and rank the show based on what's been there. So I've got to go low, but it is bumped up by you know what. So on the whole, I'm giving King of the Ring 98 a 5 out of 10 but it is the most essential watch if you dare five out of 10 you will ever get.
1: Eric, your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10.
3: You know, sometimes I feel like we as wrestling fans try to take these numerical values or these, these ratings and, and, and apply them to things that really kind of break the system. Right. And, uh, you know, Meltzer has his way, and we have our way. And then sometimes you get a match like this. That's just like the Undertaker, Mankind. That just so supersedes any of these mat- matrices or formulas or, or or preconceptions that we have going into a wrestling show. That it really does kind of break the mold. I think this show has to be looked at as one of the rare, truly canonical shows that we will ever cover if this show doesn't become one that really every basic wrestling fan has some memory about in 5 10 15 20 years i would be very very surprised i don't think when you have something that's as important as memorable and as spectacular and astounding and and potentially offensive and and potentially business changing as that undertaker mankind cell match I don't think it's fair to properly bring down, you know, its value in history because there was some shit before it and some shit after it. We've seen that with every one of the first eight WrestleManias. And those are still memorable shows because there was the one or two matches on there that really made the show truly memorable. If that match wasn't on this show, yes, absolutely. This would be a three, four, five out of ten show. I think that match is so important or is going to be so important historically and memory wise, and we're all going to be talking about it. I think the show warrants an eight out of 10.
1: It's so tough because if you are recommending a show for someone to go and watch, this would be a 10 out of 10. Like this would be top of the pile. You have to watch this show. Um, and then I mean, you saying with Eric, you saying without the uh, cell match, this is a three, four, five. Without the cell match, this is a this is a two. Like this is there's right. there's, n- there's very little on here that's that I found at all noteworthy. and and, and th- what I have enjoyed so much about the main event scene, like it lost a bit of that spark this month with Austin and Kane and that stipulation. I have no idea how to fairly judge it. Like I have no idea. Um, I wrote in my notes that I was going to give this show an eight out of 10. So I'm going to stick with it. Um, and and that is like, it's, I don't know. It's, it's impossible because even if just grading that match, like I said, afterwards, like, okay, star rating or overall show, whatever. That's a five-star match to me. Um, But just because there's a five-star match on a show, normally that wouldn't be enough to make a show that's like two or three out of ten jump to an eight. But this sort of – it's not like transcended what a five-star match would mean to me. But, like, there's a difference between a five-star wrestling match and a five-star moment. Like, there's there's probably – more five star wrestling matches out there than there are five star will transcend time and the business forever moments and this show has one of them so i'm gonna go with an eight out of ten Vince, Slaughter and Briscoe earn the ring smiling with glee to, ready to present Kane with his newly won WWF title. Kane is led to the ring by Paul Bearer who says that tonight Undertaker finally stands in Kane's shadow. Vince goes to put the WWF title around Kane's waist and out comes Steve Austin. Austin wants his rematch tonight. Vince palms in off but says that he can have the rematch if Bearer agrees to it. Bearer doesn't want to tick Austin off so he says that Austin can have the rematch if Kane approves it. Austin mentions that it was Taker who had busted him open with a chair shot not Kane and he provokes Kane by saying that his big brother beat Austin and handed him the title. Kane accepts the challenge and our main event is set. We had the debut of Stephen Regal as he defeated Darren Josdor via submission with Sable and commentary. Shamrock is being interviewed by Michael Cole when Owen Hart interrupts looking for a fight. Triple H also enters the mix and wanting to find out who the King of Kings is, a triple threat match is set between the three. We have a brawl for all tournament match between Mark Miro and Steve Blackman that goes to a decision with Blackman winning. Kevin Kelly interviews Kane who says that he can beat Austin tonight because he is a braver champion than The Undertaker ever was. Balfin defeated Dick Togo with the money shot before flirting with Yamaguchi son's wife in the front row and wiping out Kai inside with a steel chair. We had the aforementioned triple threat match between the three previous King of the Ring winners with Shamrock pinning Triple H after The Rock hit Hunter with his IC title belt in a match that featured loads of interference. DX and The Nation brawl on the ramp while Owen and Shamrock fight in the ring. Owen looks on a ring post figure 4 on Shamrock until referees break it up. The Undertaker comes out to make his confession. He says that he got involved in the match last night because he didn't want his little brother to set himself on fire, so Taker did what he had to do. Vince gets involved. He tells us that Taker did what he did because he thinks that Taker can beat Kane for the title, but he didn't believe he could beat Austin. Vince warns Taker not to interfere in the main event. Bradshaw defeated Mark Canterbury by a decision in our second Ball for All match of the evening. Kevin Kelly asks Taker if he plans on heeding Vince's warning ahead of our main event and Taker says that nobody can tell him what to do. Our main event sees Kane defend his WWF Championship against Stone Cold Steve Austin. we will hear a full breakdown of the match on the main show but after around 7 minutes Austin regained the title pinning Kane clean after the stunner. After the match Austin stunned Taker and left celebrating with his title. Uh, before we round out the month, we do have the um, small matter, considering what happened, uh, of the post-King of the Ring episode of Raw to talk through. Uh, we'll get to the fairly major main event of the evening, but f- before we do, I'd like to talk about uh, a new tournament that was introduced the following night uh, called Brawl for All. Um, yeah, Introduced this in the final episode of Raw of the month. Uh, it's a tournament in which the arena lights are turned down. The WWF put up boxing style turnbuckle pads and wrestlers were seemingly let loose to brawl as it were, uh, on this night, on this particular episode of raw, we had two brawl for a contest. We had Mark Miro versus Steve Blackman and we had Blair versus Mark Canterbury in two absolutely hideous fights that garnered the reaction from the crowd that they deserved. Um, and both went to a decision. Um, what we know is that participation is strictly voluntary. Um, each Brawl for All match consists of three one-minute rounds. Uh, the scoring works as such. Um, most punches per round gets you five points. Uh, a clean takedown, also five points, and a knockdown is worth ten. Um, that's pretty much all we know. We're, we're one show into Brawl for All. Um, Eric, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on the idea of this shoot fighting tournament we've got on raw with volunteering wrestlers and hideous fights.
3: This is not so different from the Al Snow thing that I complained about a couple of hours ago, which is the last thing you want to do is expose the fact that your fake fighters are in fact horrible, real fighters. And they put Mero against Blackman and we know Mero's a golden gloves boxer and we know Blackman's a martial artist and that match was at least, you know, styles make fights and those two guys had clashing styles. So if you put Mero in there against a boxer or Blackman against in there against a, a karate guy, or maybe even a jujitsu or as Vince McMahon would say, jujitsu style fighter, um, they could have done something that would have at least not been, you know, it could have worked its way up to a zero. Um, but when you put two brawl brawlers or bar fighters or just two dickheads like Canterbury and Bradshaw in there and they just throw hands for three minutes and blow up ten seconds into it, uh, is there gonna be a more efficient way to bury some of these guys than this tournament? Crowd <laughs> hates it. They look terrible. The the mystique of these big six, eight dudes, you know, tough dudes gets thrown out the window and they fight like a couple of schoolgirls, like this is shaping up to be a terrible idea hopefully they don't just see it through and hopefully this there's some sort of storyline or some long-term plan attached to this but if they're just going to have weeks of these fights going on oh my god Ugh. i don't know I, there's there's <laughs> going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of guys who are looking for work after this if they're going to see this through as something that's really a shoot tournament
1: Rory, what do you uh, make of brawl for all?
2: <laughs> I, well, the alarm bells were ringing when the commentary team kept calling it the brawl for it all, and then the graphic came up and called it the brawl for all. But then that, that was that was almost the least of my problems at the end. Of the three companies who we do shows for on this podcast, even with the whole new attitude that they've embraced over the last six months or so. If you come up to me and said which of the companies are now holding honest-to-goodness, bona fide, illegitimate shoot fights on their programs, I think I would... I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that WWF would be dead last on that list. No, because this is entertainment, pal. And yet here is Vince McMahon having sporting events on his entertainment show. And the people involved on them aren't sportsmen. They're not trained to try to hurt people. They are trained to make it look like they are hurting people. And that is something we buy into as wrestling fans and have done uh, ever since the business became a total work in the early 20s. I just don't know whose idea this was. McMahon, Rousseau, I, I, whoever it is. I, I cannot believe that Vince McMahon signed off on this. he's going to have his talent getting legitimately injured for the sake of what? I mean, what does it prove? okay, say this is a tournament and somebody goes on to win it. I don't know how long it's going to go on for. Somebody wins, I don't know, Blackman or whoever. He wins the tournament, right? The next day or whatever, if you do it on pay-per-view, next day on Raw, whatever, You know, he goes back to being in scripted matches which you'll be booked to win and somebody will be booked to lose. Now, you, you can't hang your hat on this. It, it, this isn't something you can work anything with. you either win this or you don't before you go back to doing your day job again, provided you can still walk by the end of it. And you've got your talent being put into potentially serious situations of injury every week when they're normally so safe and smooth. You've got the really wonky rules. I mean, it's not boxing, it's not MMA. I mean, you can win by takeouts or takedowns or push ups or whatever or takeaways or I don't bloody know what it is. I mean, the, the matches themselves are, of course, terrible because they're neither fish nor foul. So the match in which the legitimate boxer competed in. Now, he lost because steve blotman just threw himself at him for three minutes and took him down it's a nonsense idea from a company who i thought would know infinitely better to even count on something like this i cannot get my head around it i just don't know what they're doing i really really don't
1: when you take it back to basics basics like isn't like the beauty of being a promoter or a writer or whoever the hell came up with this idea in a professional wrestling company is that you can script whatever the hell you like. So if you want a tournament to get someone over and your idea is like, oh, this guy's going to win this tournament. They're going to look so good. They're going to knock all these dudes out. Well, we've just had the king of the ring. Like we've just had a scripted tournament that pretty unanimously we've decided like, isn't like some now big plus for Ken Shamrock. Like, and now these guys like mid carders are in a shoot fighting tournament where they all look hideous and anyone could win. Like, we don't know who's in it yet. We haven't seen like a graphic, but say like the bottom of the barrel, like jobber wins this tournament. Then, then what? Like, are you just going to put them in a scripted fight and have them face Austin at the next pay-per-view? Like what, if you want to get someone over, it's scripted. You can do what you want. It's like absolutely crazy. Like there's there's actually no benefit to it whatsoever. Um, apart from what a bit more posturing in the locker room if you're all the guy that wins it. Like, there's
3: got there's got to be more to this, right? Like there's
2: this can't just be it. This can't just be it, right? It, it came out of nowhere. It wasn't trailed at all until the the roar after King of the Ring. No madness, absolute madness. They've just done a scripted
1: professional wrestling tournament, which you could use as a vehicle to get a person of your choice over in a way of your choice. Like, and now it's completely baffling. Like, it's actually, as a fan, the most offensive time of the year to try and launch this bullshit is the day after king of the ring (laughs) like it is genuinely absurd like any other time of the year not like just not near a tournament that you run like is slightly less ridiculous but the day after the conclusion of a scripted tournament which you didn't really put that much emphasis on when you can use that because you write the show as a vehicle to get someone over in a dominant fashion and hey guess what in the semifinals of the tournament we had ufc veteran ken shamrock and ufc veteran dan seven two legitimate shoot fighters who maybe you could have done something with in the final had you wanted to go that way and now it's just crazy like it actually like I don't normally get angry with like WW storylines, but I like it, I find it personally offensive that they would do this the night after King of the Ring. Like it's baffling to me. I can't see any single strain of logic that it makes sense.
4: And he'll hell to get it. I'm gonna make this short and sweet because there's really not a whole lot to talk about. You know as well as I know the stipulations. The stipulations in the match, the man who drew first blood on his opponent would be the winner. You know, I know, the whole damn world knows, that big son of a bitch never busted me open.
0: Listen to that. That's the truth. That's the truth. What kind of champion would he be? Did
4: I get busted open? You're damn right, but it was The Undertaker that did it. So the reason I'm out here, shut up. The reason I'm out here, I'll knock your damn head off just for wearing those stupid shoes. Oh. The reason, look at me when I'm talking to you. The reason I'm out here is because I want a rematch with Kane right here
0: tonight. Huh. What? What? Why not? Is crazy? What? Let's get it on tonight. Oh, no. And all way. you
4: gotta do is say, yes, Steve. You got the rematch. That's all you got to say, so say it.
0: Well, uh, there's no doubt, Mr. Austin, that everyone would like to see, I'm sure, that rematch. Well, hell yeah. He deserves it. He never even got pinned last night. Well,
4: if everybody would like to see it, say, I got the damn rematch, Jackass. Yes? Say something. Get that stupid look off your face and be somebody.
0: Boy, this is too much.
4: You're supposed to be the owner of the WWF. Act like it for once.
0: Well, maybe you don't deserve a rematch tonight. That's right. He don't deserve nothing. I don't know how you figure that.
4: Well, hell, I'll cover that. If you want a rematch, give me a hell yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, I tell you what, um, it's fine with me. It's fine with me as long as it's all right with Paul Bear. <laughs> there you go. Look at look on Paul Bear's face. He said, "What the? Well, say no."
4: Well, what about it, fat ass? Oh, take the damn microphone and tell me I got the rematch. Take the damn microphone and say, Yeah, Kane will fight you tonight. That's all you gotta say.
0: He's reluctant. Son? You tell him, son.
4: I'm telling you right now take the microphone and say, Yes, Kane will fight you tonight. Spit out the cupcake and start talking.
0: (laughs) That ain't funny. Kind of funny. What a caucus that is. It's all right with me. If it's okay with Kane. Well somebody say no.
4: I dare somebody in this ring to have some guts. Will you give me the rematch tonight? I sat back there, I sat back there and, listened to you spew out a bunch of garbage about for how 20 years you wanted to be like your big brother. Finally, now, you're not in the shadow of The Undertaker, but now you're bigger than The Undertaker and The Undertaker's down here. And I look at you and you're seven feet tall, you weigh over 300 pounds. And The Undertaker, anytime he won that belt, he actually did that. He won the damn belt. Well, what he did last night was win the belt again and then hand it to your sorry ass. Uh oh. Now is about to pick up. You've got to ask yourself, you've got to ask yourself, could I have beaten Stone Cold Steve Austin fair and square?
0: That's a yes.
4: Shut up. If you don't give me the rematch, you'll never know. And how are you going to go through life saying, oh, I was the WWF champion, but my big brother won the damn belt and then handed it to me. So what I'm asking you, what I'm asking you for the last time, will you give me the rematch tonight?
1: Anyway, uh, to round off the month, it's only right we talk about the main event from the final Raw, the same Raw that we launched Brawl for all on. Um, and it, that Raw, um, at the start of the show, uh, Austin came out and he appealed to Kane's sense of pride. He questioned if Kane could actually beat Austin fair and square. Uh, and Kane accepted this challenge. He said that he could. And so the main event was set, just 24 hours Removed from King of the Ring, Kane would be defending his WWF title against Stone Cold Steve Austin live on Monday Night Raw. So we get to the match in the main event. Austin came to the ring with his arm bandaged as he had it at King of the Ring. Right from the word go, they beat the head out of each other, brawling in the corner. Austin avoided a backdrop and took Kane down with a clothesline, uh, nailing two elbow drops and unleashing with punches on the mat. He goes for the early stunner, but Kane escapes, rolling out of the ring to regroup. Austin clothesline Kane. Uh, uh, Austin jumped off the apron and clothesline Kane on the outside and threw Kane into the steps and into the guardrail. Back inside the ring, Kane stomped on Austin, chokes him in the corner. Austin came back with a Fez press. Austin caught Kane with a chop block and gets but kicked to the floor. Uh, Kane whips Austin into the steps and then the guardrail. Back inside, Kane sends Austin into the corner, chest first, and Austin retreats outside, so Bearer gets a cheap shot in. Kane applies a chin lock, and The Undertaker makes his way down to ringside. Austin fights out, but gets hit with a big boot. Uh, Kane hits a clothesline off the top for two. Austin gets caught with a chokeslam. Kane picks Austin up. He sets up for a tombstone, but Austin breaks free. Austin looks for the stunner, but Kane sends him into the ropes. Austin avoids the kick and this time hits the stunner, which is enough for the win. Austin has regained the WWF Championship after 24 hours in a seven-minute match on Monday Night Raw, picking up the clean win over Kane. Uh, the Cloud went absolutely mental with the finish. Um, as you would expect. Uh, Taki gets in the ring, but is quickly distracted by Paul Bearer. So Austin lays him out with a stunner of his own. Uh, Austin leaves celebrating with his newly won title and Kane and The Undertaker sit up simultaneously and look down at the new WWF champion who is celebrating on the ramp. Uh, Rory, I'll come to you first. What did you make of this match? And More importantly, what do you make of Austin regaining the title just 24 hours after losing it?
2: Yeah, I have my issues at like that, which I'll get to in a sec. I actually thought the match was better. I have certainly enjoyed the match more than the King of the Ring one. Again, with the shortened Raw matches these days, it does give you the chance to pack more in. And it was very energetic. I've got to give Kane credit here. He didn't do a whole lot of lumbering. There were a few rest holds. He just went out there and went for it. It's an Austin match, so it's going to be punches here, there, and everywhere. But the crowd will go nuts for it, and so do I. I get completely caught up in these things. I'm not going to complain about that. Him win, I've got to be honest. Austin winning so cleanly did surprise me a little bit. It, it makes if we are going to be treating Kane as a wrestler now, which we we have to, then one stunner puts him down. All the things he survived. If you want to really heavily k this, all the things he's heavily survived in his life, he drops the one tombstone, oh, tombstone to one stunner. Okay, but again. Got back to normal service being resumed because Austin needs to be the champion, and I'm going to forgive them this blip now, but th- th- they can't do this again. I, they can't keep taking the title off Austin. I said at WrestleMania he needed to hold it for at least the remainder of the year, and that is now even more imperative. He doesn't need. He does not need to chase the title. He is going to be over with the belt. So yeah, uh, uh, a normal that just, the just above normal TV main event but lifted by the importance of the title and who was in there and Austin needs to be the champion and I guess you could say Chris that uh, the belt has come home to use one of your favorite expressions <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Eric your thoughts on this main event and the last thing of the month
3: right we didn't we didn't cover it because if we covered everything the shows would be five hours long um, you might ask yourself, why would Stone Cold Steve Austin be granted a rematch against Kane when everybody has stacked the deck against Austin, Vince McMahon, The Undertaker, Kane, Paul Bearer? Watch the first 20 minutes of Raw that sets up this match, and all of your concerns will be satisfied. I can't put over more strongly the opening segment of this episode of Raw simply because it got us over all of the psychological questions and hurdles as to why this match would even exist and why Austin would even be given a chance just 24 hours later to regain the belt. So watch that. And then watch this match because it's stellar. It's a cracker-raw match. It only goes about seven minutes. They don't take any breaths. Everybody gets involved. Austin wins clean and all is well in the world. I don't think this really hurts Kane because Kane's not really a champion-type athlete athlete wrestler he doesn't need a belt to be Kane we know he's going to be a vicious monster he can just go light somebody on fire next week and get all of his heat back no pun intended Austin needs the belt and I think this really does a good job of setting up this uncertainty with boy the Undertaker I mean it's going to turn heel they're going to wrestle at SummerSlam probably so how do we get there well does he realign with Paul Bear does Kane go face and do they switch alignments there's a lot of things they can do here. I, it doesn't really bother me. Kane was never going to be the long-term champion. If they're going to do the switch to pop a rating, that's one thing. I think the switch also did some storyline things. It got The Undertaker involved. It planted those seeds for the inevitable heel turn. And, oh, by the way, if we do all this, we can pop a rating. And they, the execution of this was much better and much less offensive than when WCW did it back in August with Lex Luger and Hulk Hogan. So, um, yeah, you know, warts and all, I think overall, the setup to this match, this match, and the post match execution was excellent.
1: The, the major difference, really, especially when you mentioned that the Lex Luger and what WCW did last summer, is when you're taking the title off a babyface, putting it on a heel for a day, and then the babyface wins it back. Like, it's just so much more digestible for a fan than when you've got this like really really hated heel and not necessarily even like in a great heel heat kind of way just like a a heel that people don't want to be champion and then you get this amazing babyface reaction when you take the title off him and then the next day you just undo the whole thing like that is in itself like just sounds like a bad idea whereas with Austin um Rory I know you say like you, you believe he should have the belt and I, I agree with that. And he definitely doesn't need to be chasing when, I mean, cause his, his foe, the, the, his main rival is, is Vince. Like it's not a wrestler. He doesn't have like, he has, he's not, he's not got a, uh, a Sean to his Brett or something like that. Like a, he hasn't got a wrestler, one iconic character in ring to work off. It's it's gonna be a rotation of guys, but the consistency will be that it's it's always Vince McMahon stacking the deck, and the Austin McMahon storyline is what's gonna carry it. And for that to work, really, Austin needs to have the belt. If if Austin doesn't have the belt, and Vince the owner is the owner of the company, Austin storyline, logic-wise, and I mean, you should never try and apply too much logic to wrestling because then so much falls apart. Like nineteen ninety eight WWF or WCW wrestling, that is. Um, but if Austin didn't have the belt for very long, like for, for a prolonged period of time, why would he ever work himself in a position to win that belt back when Vince is so anti-Austin? Like you, it. Would be a stretch. It'd be difficult to tell that story over and over again. Whereas the story of Austin holding onto the belt and outsmarting McMahon and keeping hold of it just could write itself forever. So the dynamic works with Austin as champion. So I'm glad they put the belt back on him. And as you both said, this was a really, really good TV main event and a great way to uh, round off the month. That will do it for this edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We've got three volumes, uh, as always, for you this month. This will be uh, volume number one. Uh, Volume number two will be WCW, covering the great American Bash pay per view. And volume number three is All Your ECW Action. This has been volume number one, as I said. And I'd like to thank, firstly, Eric for joining me uh, back in the time machine. Talking all yeah, things
3: but, WWF. Yeah, this one was this one was good fun. I was I was worried about how we were going to, you know, faithfully convey our thoughts about this controversial uh, show and, and everything, but I think we did a pretty good job.
1: Uh, I do too. Uh, and also, thank you very much to Rory for uh, being on the show and organizing the show and everything that comes with it.
2: Yes. Yeah, uh, all comes out in the wash, as they say. Excellent show today, guys. I say... Uh, Difficult topic, but I think we handled it extremely well.
1: sorry, Eric I uh, didn't allow you to plug your social media. You could be found on twitter
2: oh yeah i'm on I'm on
3: Twitter at modern day lawyer if you're so inclined to give me a checkout
2: and Rory uh yourself anything to plug Twitter? Uh, you can find me on the Twitter at Planet Drop UV is my new handle. And, of course, you can uh, follow us at Wrestling20Years on Twitter, which we talk about all sorts of stuff, uh, predominantly out of timeline, but we do dip back into it. Uh, we'll do things like watch-alongs. We've got one coming up in a couple of weeks for SummerSlam89, and we will soon be voting on the next one. We have, like, Saturday discussion points. So just come along, see us on the Twitter at Wrestling20Years.
1: Excellent. Um, Yeah. So uh, I have been uh, your host, Chris White. You can find me on Twitter if you would so choose to at Chris White 14. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure you check us out wrestling at wrestling 20 years on the Twitter. Uh, Thank you very much for listening until next time. Goodbye.